The second 2012 encounter at Mount Shasta involved contactee Enrique Villanueva. He stated that he has had many NHI experiences at Shasta, but he only had one physical meeting. That occurred in 2012. In an interview with Paula Harris, Villanueva described what happened. It happened in the September 21-22 timeframe. We were camping at Shasta. At some point, I separated from the group. I was looking for someone when I felt a light, somewhat bright, in that specific area of the open forest. I remained there for a little bit, thinking that I was going to meditate. At a distance, there was a hill, 50 meters away from me, and behind the hills, I noticed movement of some people. I thought they were hikers from Shasta City. They looked like young people. They were wearing clothes like the people who drive bicycles. They were tight and white. I noticed that they had long hair, light blonde, and at the moment, I did not want to think much because it is not commonplace to have an encounter. So I thought they must be some hikers, and I turned my face to continue my meditation. Then I felt the thing. I had a feeling, and I said, no. I looked again, and one of the guys walked towards me in front of the hill, and he raised his hand. He had blonde hair, and he was muscular, but not as tall as the guy that I saw years ago. This guy was Sambiak. We and the Rama group had contact with him through Sindoria. He is supposed to be from one of the bases on Venus. They have colonies in a group of stars called the Pleiades. And what happened is this guy just saluted like that, and I thought, just give him your hand. I cannot handle this again. Then, from the group in the back, a woman started walking down the hill. She was definitely a female figure, and she had on high boots. She walked in a straight line down the hill. She turned, and then she walked towards me. It was kind of weird, because while I heard the sound of her steps, I turned my head to look down, and her feet were not touching the ground, and that really shocked me. This was not normal, so I was sitting on this piece of wood, and I just closed my eyes. I heard her steps getting closer, and she was right there, and then it was like she was holding me. She made me remember the moments when we worked together in the past, in this lifetime and in some other place which I don't remember. Maybe she deposited some kind of image that made me feel comfortable. That same woman had appeared to Enrique in 1995, when he got a prevision of an American Airlines plane that crashed in Colombia. The woman was above the crashed plane, helping the people transition from their bodies. Ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Nick, and I am joined by the translocated duo, Jay and Rory Wicks. Where'd I go? I mean, I'm 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 right here. Uh, <laughs> on this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. And we're back. 
in the basement. You know, I was going to say the attic just to mess with our listeners, but no, we are still in the basement. We couldn't be in the attic. That would be so much worse. We'd get 20 minutes into this episode, and then they'd hear me screaming as I plummet through the ceiling. Well, not even just that. I don't even think you'd fit. No, there are a couple spots up there I could stand. I've poked my head up there once. Once. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, you're probably right. I mean, I've never looked in it. I'm just thinking addicts in general, and you're a giant, so... Well, I mean, also, it's filled with poison, so that really doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, we are here today to talk about the portals and UFOs of Mount Shasta by Grant Cameron. Shasta. Hey, he's a great name. I, I like saying the word Shasta. So, Shasta. Uh, I guess uh, first impulse is, what do we think of the book, guys? Ah! Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. It's not that, like, it's not that it was a bad book. No, no. Not- I, I, uh, I enjoyed probably the vast majority of it. Uh, it just... um. Boy, howdy, were some of the words written on a page. Yeah, well, I think what we were seeing here was um, two issues. One, a lot of a lot of this book is direct quotes. Uh, we were just talking off air about that. I mean, I would say 50% of this book is is straight direct quotes from experiencers. Uh, which or, is, or other, other uh, researchers. Yeah, other researchers or journalists or whatever. But the issue there is that the vast majority of those people, um, English is not their first language, and no attempt was made to uh, correct for their sentence structure. So if in that initial reading I did, if any of that sounded weird, that's just that's how it was presented on the page. Yeah, almost, I, I actually, I think Grant Cameron might be the only native English speaker in the book. Yeah, I think, yeah, because even Paula, she's Italian, right? She doesn't yeah. speak English, like, at all. Like, yeah. barely. Because yeah, she had a translator for most of it. Uh-huh. That's true. Yeah, well, and then the other thing, I I mean, again, I'm not sure if all of that was due to quotes, or some of it might be due to uh, uh, he, he needs to fire whoever edited this, because there are a couple sentences that took me 20 to 30 reads before, I'm not going to say I got what it meant, before I gave up and moved on to the next sentence. I don't know if he had an editor, because I think this was done by his publishing company. Which might explain a lot. Yeah, I think it it was. Yeah, it's all connected publishing. Yep, no, this was his company. His his publishing company is called It's All Connected Publishing. Yeah. It's all in all caps, and it's all one word, and I just... I, I needed to put my head on my desk for a couple of minutes. It's not all all in caps. Look right there. It is, and when he references, or when he talks about it in the book, it is. Yes, oh. it is. Yeah, in the book. Um. Yeah. No. So, but on the whole, I thought there was a lot of interesting ideas in here. Uh, it was definitely talking about an aspect of contact that I've never looked at that seemed very strange to me. But I mean, who am I to judge? Because it's not really addressed in your discussion questions there is something that i wanted to bring up all right and that is that a lot of what we're going to talk about is very extravagant yes um and the people that we are going to talk about are not for the most part with the exception of probably paula harris yeah with the exception of maybe paula harris they're not very well-known people uh, I mean, it depends on the circle. I mean, Joseph Burke is pretty well known. That's true, and there was there was a couple others that I, like I recognize the name, like uh, Chris. Uh, is it Chris? His last name Chris Bledsoe. Bledsoe, yeah, yeah. They mentioned Chris Bledsoe. They mentioned George Adamski. Um, Michael Sala. He's written a couple books. Yeah, they're. But I guess what I mean is they're not uh, the most well known people amongst. Um, 
like the American UFO sphere, if you're not branching out to look at the full uh, contactee narrative specifically. Absolutely. Well, and I think that was part, kind of part of uh, the core narrative of this book being that these contact experiences have largely been ignored by the North American ufological, uh, ufological community, primarily because they're very much rooted in South American culture and South American contactee groups. Yeah. Even though the primary contact does happen at Mount Shasta in Washington. California, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not, not Washington. Not, yeah. Yes. <laughs> in Northern California. Yeah. Uh, that said, these groups are mostly people who come up from South America. Yeah. And the reason why I bring that up is just because, again, these are very um, extravagant things that happen to these, to these individuals. And so, and, on, and some of the other people that are, are referenced throughout here, and I took note of it, uh, are also people that have been referenced in other books, ones we didn't like. So, yeah, no, I mean, here's the thing is absolutely this book stretched my credulity to the breaking point at times. It broke mine. Um, I, I come back to me attempting to, you know, again, entertain everything, believe nothing. I, I'm willing, not willing to call these people liars. And there's a couple ideas I have about what may have been going on here, but we're going to get into that with the discussion questions. So are we ready to get started? Yeah, sure. Uh, So one thing of note before I start reading the summary is that uh, throughout this book, Grant Cameron uses the term E.T. to refer to the aliens, the visitors, whatever you want to call them. So I've done that here in the summary. However, you should note that it's used pretty interchangeably to describe what sounds like extraterrestrials, interdimensional, time travelers even. Um, There's a lot of confusion about what exactly they're interacting with. So just keep that in mind whenever I say E.T. I'm not only talking about extraterrestrials. He also uses non-human intelligence or NHI a lot. Yes, he does do that. All right. So getting into this, we're at section one. What the hell are we even talking about? Since its inception, the field of modern ufology has, in the Western world, maintained a relatively narrow focus on North American encounters. From Betty and Barney Hill's horrific abduction, to the cosmic enlightenment of Whitley Strieber, to the utter strangeness of the Chris Bledsoe story, our continent seems infested with men from Venus. So much so that until the modern times, many thought of UFOs as a distinctly American issue. Of course, this does a great disservice to the topic. As many researchers are now pointing out, the experience of contact with non-human intelligences from beyond the stars, space, or time seem to be part and parcel with the human experience as a whole. One such researcher is well-known Canadian ufologist Grant Cameron, who is best known for his research into Charlie Red Star, an anomalous burning red object that was seen for several weeks cruising over the skies of Manitoba, Canada. Formerly a purely nuts-and-bolts-style researcher, a data download experience in 2012 led him to embracing the consciousness connection to the UFO mystery, among other theories once considered fringe in an already fringe community. And in 2017, following a trail of synchronicities, he was led to the infamous UFO hotspot of Mount Shasta, where a South American contactee named Ricardo Gonzalez was organizing an annual meditation retreat which served two purposes, to meditate on world peace and to facilitate contact with another world. This book is about that contact, which stems from a decades-long tradition founded among South American contactee circles 
of using one's mind to summon, communicate, and invite contact with the UFO intelligence. Now, while this may sound familiar to those versed in Dr. Stephen Greer's CE5-branded protocols, the methods utilized by these groups predates Greer by a number of decades. And if the hundreds of witnesses, journalists, and UFO researchers who have taken part are to be believed, have been successful not only in establishing contact with a lively cast of consistent ET visitants, namely a friendly giant named Antarell, but also of bringing forth a dire warning that has been echoed by contactees across the world. Quote, Antarell's message was that we had almost destroyed the world, and we had less than a hundred years left. That is no big discovery, since the only true scientific study of experiences showed that 39% of experiencers who claimed to have interacted with the intelligence behind the phenomenon said they were told the same thing. However, before we can get into Antarell or the 2017 gathering that Cameron participated in, he first takes some time to nail down the brass tacks that provide context to the narratives that will follow. Context rooted in the South American contact tradition and in what he has dubbed the circus. The circus being the lights, anomalies, and miracles associated with UFO contact. After all, as many have asked, why would an interstellar craft need bright spotlights on the bottom of it? Why would alien greys make great shows of pageantry during the abduction experience? And why would advanced spacemen land on a farmer's lawn to cook up some wheat cakes? The answer is simple, because it gets our attention. Quote, The aliens, particularly Antarell, are luring us with what seem to be miracles, like the circus does with their high-performance acts. They do not have to perform flybys and land in the forests for the sake of world peace. Antarell does flybys and landings to provide visual proof to back his messages of environmental protection and world peace. In much the same way, Cameron argues, the miracles of Christ ensured that he would be remembered long after he was dead, instead of being lost to history like so many other revolutionary-minded peacemakers. The anomalous makes for a good, and more importantly, memorable story, which in turn ensures that the story will be told and spread, hence increasing the chances that the core message will be heard by as many people as possible. Which is also why some experiencers, such as Chris Bledsoe, have seemingly been granted the gift of prophecy along with the message of world peace. For with every plane crash and natural disaster Bledsoe accurately predicts, the more weight is given to his message of oncoming ecological calamity. And another aspect of this circus is the program sightings that occur on Mount Shasta in Northern California. Communicating telepathically with the likes of Ricardo Gonzalez, Enrique Villanueva of the legendary South American contact group Mission Rama, and other unrelated contactees, Antarell and the other visitors from the planet Apu have passed along exact dates and times at which there would be planned flybys and contact experiences in the Mount Shasta area. But more than flybys and twinkling lights in the dark, these encounters also often include the appearance of a doorway to another world, a portal that briefly allows one space to coexist and overlap with another, stranger reality. These portals, well known to South American contactees, are called Zendras. The term Zendra has its roots in the Mission Rama contactee group, established in 1974 by brothers Carlos and Sixto Pazuelos, who describe them as interdimensional doorways established by non-human intelligences for the purpose of facilitating physical contact events. According to the Wells, such Zendras often appear as small domed areas, within which physical contact with E.T. occurs. 
As for the name Zendra, that came from one of their alien contacts, an entity known as Oxulk, who explained that these portals allow them to travel from place to place while bypassing that pesky general relativity. These Zendras, and the entities behind them, sit at the core of Mission Rama experiencer groups and gatherings. However, that isn't to say they have a monopoly on cool space doors. Contactee and central figure of this book, Ricardo Gonzalez, has had a long history of accurately predicting both program sightings and encounters with Zendras. Quoting his own ET contacts on the matter, quote, The Zendras were established from a contact perspective as the main tool for close encounters with you. It is a less traumatic way for you to have a meeting with us and at the same time gives us the means to teach you about other interdimensional realities that will have a foothold on Earth in the near future. While portals to other worlds may sound rad as hell, to many they are a bridge too far into lunatic land. It is for that very reason that Cameron spends the next several chapters revealing all the hints about scientific and governmental interest in portals that have come to light over the years. These include some tantalizing hints dropped by a supposedly high-level intelligence official named Ron Pandolfi, who, via proxies and offhanded comments, seems to have been hinting at the government's interest in replicating Zendra technology. For example, on a cruise ship ride through the Panama Canal, he spoke briefly about what sounds like a government project to open a portal. Quote, For thousands of years, people have speculated on what it is like to enter the entrance to another world. Now we are on the cusp of a breakthrough where the door is about to open. Furthermore, in a now-deleted GoToMeetings video, government scientist Joe Fermage was asked, by Pandolfi's daughter Kashmir, who we should note is also a self-professed half-alien, if he has ever seen a portal, to which he claimed that many labs in the area were at work on different versions of such a technology. Though, to me, the best indication of governmental interest in the topic of Zendras comes from a legendary figure in the UFO world, Dr. Kit Green, who formerly headed up the CIA's Weird Desk, which received reports of UFOs and other paranormal occurrences in relation to CIA operations. Shortly following the 2013 Citizens' Hearings on Disclosure in Washington, D.C., Rendlesham Forest UFO witnesses Jim Penniston and John Burroughs were approached by Green, who, in exchange for full military disability benefits to handle the medical issues they had suffered following their own close encounter, requested that they submit to full DNA analysis and MRI scans. Determined to find out why, Penniston hounded Green, rejecting his assertions that this had to do with studying UFO propulsion technologies. Eventually, Green caved, stating, quote, Okay, so the real meaning of my point of view is that this is not just about Rendlesham Forest itself, but also aspects of the phenomenon we have seen in other witnesses. And rather than propulsion, we want to understand exactly how the technology enables dimensional travel. So in a sense, it is propulsion. Compounding on this incident are a pair of leaked audio files containing conversations between Green and an intuitive woman codenamed CRM. This individual had worked with Green in the past, providing psychic information to aid in his government-sponsored research. An endeavor in which, according to Green, she demonstrated a 95-100% to 100% accuracy rate. One such recording contains a conversation between the two regarding the others, a common term reportedly used in governmental circles when discussing the visitors. Green had given her a set of coordinates off the coast of Southern California's Catalina Islands, an area close to where numerous encounters had occurred between anomalous craft and the U.S. Navy. She applied her intuitive skills and reported back that there was a fourth-dimensional portal in that area, 
which was related to an underwater base that housed a mixture of humans and ETs engaged in some sort of ongoing educational process, as well as working to stabilize tectonic plate disruptions caused by overzealous drilling into the Earth's crust. From there, Cameron takes the reader on a short tour of other supporting evidence for the existence of portals, which, for the sake of our discussion, I will only briefly mention, though if you're interested, I'd advise picking up a copy of the book. These include a large number of stories from well-known contactees and researchers such as Chris Bledsoe, who had a revelatory experience while fishing in 2007, whereupon he witnessed a portal-like tear open in the sky, from which a number of anomalous objects issued at great speed. And in much the same way, many recipients of E.T. house calls or abductions report the entities as entering their home through holes in the air, popping in and out much like the UFOs reported in recent years by naval pilots. And completing the correlation between UFO technology and the seemingly mystical experience of meditative contact reported by groups like Gonzalez's and Mission Rama, Cameron includes a number of well-known quotes from governmental and defense industry insiders who seem to indicate a direct connection between UFOs and psychic phenomenon. For example, former chairman of the Institute for Defense Analysis, Dr. Eric Walker, was asked how one could get in on the secrets behind the UFO cover-up, to which he said, quote, How good is your sixth sense? How much do you know about ESP? Unless you know about it and how to use it, you would not be taken in. All of which we should remember is ultimately background information to the events yet to come on Mount Shasta and the incredible contact reported to have taken place there. Which brings us to our first discussion question. Woo. So, one thing that kept circling my brain by this point of the book was the differences in the contact experience found in different areas of the world and why that might be. So let's spin our wheels on that for a moment. Why do you think contact differs in style and substance based off your geographical location? Does that indicate something about the entities making contact, the location, or the contactees themselves? I think it's more about the contactees themselves. Um, like, ultimately, I, I, I mean, which, which I guess also takes your geographical location also is taken into consideration here. But I, I don't necessarily think that it's a conscious choice or decision. Like, I, I, I don't know. Why? Obviously, we, we don't know. Yeah, right? we know nothing. Yeah. <laughs> As always, we know nothing. Yeah. Um, but, like, thinking about it, every culture is different, right? Uh, how they're raised, what they believe in, what, what they call something, or how they react to something. A lot of it is going to come up by our, our, our nurture, right? How we were raised. Um, so, if you, the area you were raised in culturally is maybe... Um, more violent. Maybe it's more exclusionary than maybe the expectation of how you're going to think or react to something like this is going to be different. And therefore, if we believe that the phenomenon reacts to us based on like even our subconscious, uh, our subconscious thoughts, then maybe it's reacting accordingly. So what if the aliens or the, the extraterrestrials or the non-human intelligence or the ultra-terrestrials or whatever we want to call them today. The dudes. Yeah. What if they don't really know how they're going to interact with us ultimately? They just know that they're coming into this plane one in one form or another. So they come down in their ship or their portal or their fucking techno magic, whatever, 
And they're thinking to themselves that they are going to help guide us into some great new path. And then they see someone whose subconscious is like, yeah, fuck me up. Like that's what's gonna that's what's gonna help that's what's that's what's gonna help me. I I don't know why. Why are you making me do this to you? Right. <laughs> Look then, what you made me do. And 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 ultimately, it's like well, or maybe it's because like they think that because they grew up in a, an area that's more prone to violence, that showing them this, showing them whatever it is in a more violent or more scary fashion is what they need, you know, some good old-fashioned trauma. It's going to help shoot them in the right direction. But again, maybe they don't, maybe the, maybe the others don't even know that that's how, how it's going to be. They just know that they are coming down here and that they're going to interact with us, and then they just kind of are forced into whatever interaction uh, uh, we have. So, like, if the phenomenon is some great thing that reacts to us, then we have to think that, somehow some way for some reason they it's not a conscious choice but the people themselves because of their upbringing because of their lifestyle i i don't know they are getting this kind of uh this kind of interaction this kind of contact with them it it kind of remind that idea reminds me of uh quantum leap the Scott, yeah, a little the Scott bit. Bakula, yeah. He, he's jumping into the situation, not knowing what role he's going to be playing. Yeah, not knowing what he's there to do. Just that he's going to be there at the right place at the right time, and he's just going to have to roll with it. What it, what I was thinking about was kind of like uh, in uh, changing the lost, which is a tabletop game that we play in the 2.0 version. When you are in the dreaming, you can take up a role as an actor. You don't necessarily know. In fact, most of the time you don't know what your role is as an actor if you are not inside your own dreamscape. You have to figure it out. You have to play along. You know, and that's kind of I guess that's kind of where the idea that that I was going with came from because I I can't think of any other like reason why other than maybe the non-human intelligence people things uh, have the the world sliced into different different areas, and they're just different entities picking out, you know, the, or, or or interacting with different areas of the world, and so it's on them. Which I, I should note that is legitimately one of the theories that gets bandied around, especially around the nuts and bolts researchers, mm -hmm. that different species kind of have uh, mining rights to different areas of the world. I, although I, I guess what they're mining is us. Yeah. Yeah, we we are we are the mineral. I always knew I was a precious gem. <laughs> um, but I guess yeah, that's kind of my 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 thoughts on it. Just because I don't, I I don't like the idea of they just I don't know that they're racist. It's not saying that that's not necessarily true because I I guess it, you know humans can be racist, so can aliens. I mean, sure, know? yeah. I, I just, uh, if, you know, the way that, especially in this book, that they talk about, like, Antriel, is that how we're saying it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to pronounce it a dozen different ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, we got to remember, a lot of these names that I, we're going to be saying over the course of this episode and terms, uh, they're, they're meant to be spoken in Spanish. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, the word well, is still going to be the same, but the inflection and tone is not going to be pronounced right. Well, Antriel is an uh, alien name. So, yeah, 
I don't, and, it, and the fact that as the AL is angelic, so uh, the AL. That's, actually, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that, that, that is it, the it, first it's thing. It's very that close. I yeah, of course, that's the first thing you thought. No, it's very close to an angelic name. That's. I assumed that was the reason why that was the name style that it was chosen was to represent like some form of angelic form. But interesting. I, that's all. I, you know what? But well, I just completely lost my train of thought from that. But anyway, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it reminds me also, uh, your idea reminds me also of something we've discussed previously, that what if the elements of the uh, phenomenon, meaning, you know, again, all of paranormality, that we can most readily interact with are the ones that are of a, of a very similar vibrational frequency. So it's possible that maybe the North American culture lends itself to us being closer in frequency to, say, the greys. Yeah. Whereas in South America, um, their culture lends them to live a life that leads to a certain vibrational frequency that the Apunians are close to, so they can interact with them. Yeah. One other thing that I noticed is um, the was I think it was the planet uh, Apu is also in Ganymede. Yeah. You know what else was also in Ganymede? Lanulos. Oh, that's a good point. No wonder I can't stand them. So, uh, I guess, food for thought on that. Now I'm just thinking, was Indrid Cold an Aponian? No, he was a Lanulosian. Yeah, but what do those words even mean? E exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jay. So, uh, honestly, I... So, uh, honestly... The way that we have interacted with the study of the phenomenon so far obviously lends itself most to the idea of cultural frequencies determining who can interact with what culture. But part of me also leans more towards, no, no, they treat us like animals and sex toys. Of course, they drew lines across the planet and probably picked names out of a hat over who got to fuck with who. Why should I expect anything better from these assholes from the stars? Huh. I mean, maybe. I mean, which actually does uh, lend itself to the third theory I have, which I, I think I do lend towards more of the frequency interpretation. But yeah. <laughs> uh, thinking in terms of, say, John Keel, uh, what this could be is an intentional ruse to ensure humanity can never get the complete picture about what's going on. Because yeah. Uh, yeah, if I come yeah. to one population giving one message and I go to a different population giving a conflicting message. Well, great. I get the monkeys to fight, and neither of them are looking at the person who brought the message. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, that's definitely another possibility, and also I think it might it might be a combination of all three. That it's the interaction with the physical world around them, the cultural people, and just the the individual flavor of visitor that is showing up at the exact moment. I, I I don't think it can possibly just be one thing that is causing this great of a divide. And that's part of the that's part of the other reason why I think that why I am willing to accept the idea of them kind of drawing up borders around who can interact with who, they being the visitors and, you know, drawing borders over what regions they can come interact with earthlings I, I i'm 
partly willing to accept that because of the, you know, the the possibilities that have been floated about disinformation campaigns and various national governments having possible contact with them. Different governments might allow different levels of interaction and different levels of harm to be done to their people. Or maybe it might be determined about or maybe it might be affected by have we had contact with this government or not? And uh, but yeah, I I think it's probably a combination of all of the different factors because if it wasn't a combination of those different factors, then we'd have Latin American immigrants living in New York talking about Zendras, and by and large, they don't. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, it. It makes me wonder what if it is something of a mixture between these various ideas and that what we're seeing is, um, yes, we're interacting with the entities that we're vibrationally close to and they're giving different messages. But what if the, the, the net goal is kind of who wins out on influencing humanity as a whole? If the Eponians win out, we end up in the future that they've uh, they've proposed. If the Greys win out, that we end up in the future that they propose and sort of in this way. By initiating contact on small portions of the population and maybe even pitting us against each other if you follow, say, the ultra-terrestrial theory, well, then they're kind of playing a game. They're seeing, all right, which ideology is going to take root here on this planet? But doesn't that go counter to the message that uh, Antriel was trying to send, that we still have free will? Yes, but here's the thing is, if we're going from a John Keel perspective, everything Antriel said was a lie. I mean, I don't necessarily doubt that. Yeah, no, I, that is honestly my biggest thing with this book is that there was, and I'm, we're going to talk about this in some later questions, but so many of these incidents that end up happening later on are so wild and strange that, A, I mean, obviously my first instinct is kind of knee-jerk that that didn't happen or I, you're, people are lying to me, but I, I have to accept that what if that happened exactly as they described and they're being tricked? Or, you know, it happened exactly as they're being described. And what the hell does that say about how wild and complicated this truly is? I mean, even without that, it's wild and complicated. This, yeah. the, the, this is, uh, you know, it's another level of wild complications that are added into it. Um, and the one of the biggest things that I can't get past, and, or, or that not, I, not that I can't get past, because I, I can, uh, but that I struggle with, I'll say, is... So much of uh, what Ricardo, Ricardo, Ricardo Gonzalez, yeah, Ricardo does, how he acts, how he says things, what he's doing, is so similar to Stephen Greer. It's I, so similar to Billy Meyer. It's so, and these guys are all effectively cult leaders. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, and Stephen Greer. He even gets brought up a couple times in the show. So, did, because, so does Billy Meyer. Well, because, of course, this, his C-SETI group is effectively doing the same thing that uh, Ricardo's group is doing, that Mission Rama does. Now, granted, they do predate him, um, but at the same time, it, it is the same fundamental act. You are engaging in focused meditation to communicate with non-human intelligences. And that's not me throwing shade on that idea. As I've said before, I think, personally... Stephen Greer started at from a a good position, um, and he very he very quickly became corrupted by the attention and the money 
and and everything that came with that. He started, you know, like we were talking about with Jack, he started to see himself as the Messiah. Yeah. And because of that, he kind of got lost within his own ego. And and that that is kind of where I struggle struggled with a lot of this is because so much of it felt so um uh, pointed and 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 towards specific people like Paula Harris and Grant Cameron. Like all of a sudden uh, he's getting messages for Paula and Grant specifically. Yeah. You know, and that they have to come here, that they have to see this thing at this exact time. You know, yeah, it was, ve- it felt very manipulative. Uh, yeah, I know. I could see that. And then if you were ta- taking a step back and just looking at it from the perspective of human behavior, I mean, it's not that dissimilar from the way Scientology courts celebrities. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, you know, you are, we have special messages for you. You are special. You are cherished. You have a special purpose within our mission. I mean, and even, and we'll get into this, but I'll just say it briefly, even when Grant finally does go or does get invited to one of these, in between like every section, Ricardo's asking him, what do you think about this? How do you feel about this? What did you see? Like very pointed, very direct, very like almost forcing him to get involved in all of this so that he can be involved in all of this, not just take an observer point of view. And there were multiple instances in the book that I, that like, I, I only remember one specifically, but I think there were multiple ones where people got freaked out because, hey, there's an alien here, or hey, there's a doorway opening up. I'm not sure I want to do this. And the response was to kind of shame them and pressure them for not immediately getting on board. And I'm sorry, that shit makes me want to put my fist through a wall. Well, and I I, I did notice that uh, there was a little bit of a callousness to how people uh, how pe- they reacted to people's fear. And, yeah, specifically when Paula Harris didn't want to move forward, uh, he said that Antriel was like disappointed and yeah. like all this, and it's like really like. That 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 almost feels counter to this message that's being sent. Yeah, like, yeah this I, is supposed to be in your time. That's even the message that's been that was sent to other people by Antrail. Well, and I'm sure we're we have there's m- many more contradictions we're going to come up to. Specifically, I mean, yes, there's contradictions in how the visitors themselves behaved, but most of the contradictions I noticed were the differences between the dogma being espoused by the group leaders. And the actual messages that supposedly came from these visitors. Yeah, I would, there was I some. Agree. There was a discongruity there. And I wonder if maybe the vast differences we're seeing uh, in in contactee experiences across borders and across landmarks has nothing to do with individual contactees and has more to do with whatever charismatic leader is attempting to build a group around whatever their whatever their. E.T. revelations are. Yeah. It, that's entirely possible. I mean, we do have to always consider the human element. And I know that, you know, on the show, we don't like to label people frauds. We don't like to just straight out say people are lying because, hey, unless you're Len Caston, because, <laughs> because, because, hey, right. ultimately we weren't there. You know, we, we can't 100% say that. Now we can, we can have inklings, we can have, uh, you know, intuition. And, I, I can say I got weird vibes off uh Mr. Gonzalez. Oh yeah. No, I got I got uh I got seriously rancid vibes, that's the word I was thinking of, off of, off of many of the, the ways that he was interacting. I don't know, a lot of it was so convenient and so 
deliberate in ways that made me very suspicious. My, my, uh, my, you know, I, it's hard for me, especially in my career to take off my critical thinking cap, you know, you you never should. Right. No, I, I know. Uh, and, and, but that's what I do for a living is I, I have to think, you know, through the lines, whatever. And so there were parts of this when I'm sitting there going like, I can't believe what you're saying. You know, like I just, I can't. Yeah. All right. So are we speaking, which are we ready to get into the next section? Yep. Section two, how this might work. In the next several sections of the book, Cameron performs an exhaustive review of the elements of South American contact lore that may be unfamiliar to those outside its geographical boundaries. These elements appear to be nearly ubiquitous among these groups, even those who do not work together. These include using meditation as the primary form through which contact can occur. Quote, This is common to all the various Latino contact modalities. Each contactee group maintains that meditation is the key to contact. The belief is that it raises the vibration of the group and allows higher vibrating entities to interact. This same principle is also used in other contact modalities, such as in physical mediumship circles, where music and singing are utilized to elevate the vibration to allow discarnate entities to communicate and manifest. Of course, in the minds of many Western ufologists, this aligns these groups firmly with the woo side of the UFO community. However, as we will soon see, understanding the South American contact experience requires one to first understand its deep roots in spiritual and sacred concepts. Rather than treating the UFO mystery as a scientific problem to be solved, the majority of these groups instead see contact as a sacred process by which they connect themselves to other intelligences which are of a similar mindset, in turn steeping their language in terms more commonly heard among religious circles. Historian Girodio Piacenza is quoted on the subject as writing, quote, Contactees formed within these cultures often seem to relate with the most respectful and similarly inspired extraterrestrials, providing them with lofty messages in which using the phrase the Father when referring to God is not felt to be passé or avoided. Neither is the word love avoided. Furthermore, quite often the important cosmic organizing role of a universal interpretive spiritual intelligence like the Christ, even providing a local earthly manifestation like Jesus, is unequivocally mentioned, with great respect and reverence. Which will be important to keep in mind as we attempt to navigate two more key elements of these groups' experiences, the cosmic name and the cesium crystals. The cosmic name, as described by Mission Rama's Sixto Paz Wells, is akin to a personal vibrational key, a mantra or other vocalization which can be used to raise one's individual vibration or consciousness to a point at which contact with higher vibrational beings becomes feasible. Quote, like a tuning fork that vibrates high and shudders, submerging us first in the deepest parts of ourselves and then projecting ourselves towards the universe. These names are unique to the individual and are obtained primarily through meditation, dreams, and visionary experiences and they are used during group meditation by each individual to raise the group's energy and direct their will towards the task of contact. Now, if that is a little too esoteric for you, I'd suggest shutting this show off now, as the Cesium Crystal Initiation, most popular in the Mission Rama group, is another key element of their contact method, and is even harder to grasp. These crystals are not rocks in the sense we understand them, but rather are a, quote, 
catalytic antenna collaborating with our subtle energy mechanisms. And if that statement confuses you, you can join me over here in the dunces corner. <laughs> this initiation consists of certain select individuals undergoing a ritual in which they are led to channel two pyramidal energy constructs into their hands, drawing down the energy from the cosmos. The purpose being to integrate these crystals into the subtle energy matrix that makes up the individual's body, granting them greater protection from some of the negative effects experienced during contact events and journeys into a Zendra. This process requires purification of the body and many participants forgo stimulants, processed foods, and other corruptive influences leading up to the ritual. Once so imbued, said individual is better positioned to help initiate and lead contact experiences if they have the strength to maintain a lifestyle conducive to a higher vibrational level. If one falls back to the temptations of nicotine, alcohol, and Pop-Tarts, they stand the risk of losing their crystals through their urine, never to be obtained again which is the only instance in which successfully passing crystals through urine could be considered a bad thing. <laughs> also, like, um, I'm fucked. Oh, yeah, no, we are all fucked. We are, <laughs> we are, we are befouled. We yeah. are unholy ground as far as uh, the Yapunians are concerned. Yeah. I eat radioactive garbage every <laughs> single day of my life. I don't... Th I sh nicotine. I mean, that, you that, are hitting a vape right now. Yeah. You're actually ingesting nicotine right now. Yeah, y yes. Yes, I am. These are two elements which, many believe, help contribute to and facilitate the Zendra in contact experience. However, there is one perhaps more important element, the presence of an antenna. Known in many other circles of ufology as prime contactees, antenna are individuals who, for whatever reason, are born with a deeper innate connection to non-human intelligences, and hence act as lightning rods for anomalous activity. The history of ufology is chock full of examples of such individuals, including George Adamski, Francis Swan, Misha Goldman, Chris Bledsoe, and Wilbert Smith. Another such individual is, of course, Ricardo Gonzalez, who experienced psychic phenomenon for most of his life leading up to his first contact experience. It's me, the specialist boy. <laughs> Though for our purposes, his most interesting psychic ability seems to be the ability to communicate telepathically with non-human intelligences and receive advance warning of when and where programmed sightings are to occur, which he has done for hundreds of witnesses, including prominent members of South American and Spanish media outlets with incredible accuracy often predicting the sighting down to the minute. Theorizing briefly on how Gonzalez and those like him do what they do, Cameron suggests that we may find our answer in the often fraught topic of alien implants. Citing the work by podiatrist and well-known alien implant remover Dr. Roger Lear, Cameron notes that several of the implants were found to be emitting radio waves while still inside the patient and that among the observed radio waves, one commonly seen was a frequency of 127.72826 MHz, which is important as this is close to the ideal frequency to broadcast radio signals into deep space. Sadly, when the implants are removed, the transmission ends, prompting me to wonder if the heat or kinetic or chemical energy of the human body is what powers the devices. Another possible theory may hide in the brains of such individuals, Dr. Kit Green and Stanford's Dr. Gary Nolan have been conducting a long-term analysis of the brain structures of contactees and have found, quote, additional fibers between the caudate and the putamen, 
One of the theories used to explain why these fibers were there was that they may be serving as some sort of antenna between the individual and something they had experienced. Regardless of how it occurs, the vehicle of delivery seems fairly consistent. The messages either come as spontaneous psychic communications, or more often, through automatic writing. The latter being so common that it has become the central contact method utilized by Mission Rama in their contact efforts, and was in fact the method by which Sixto Paz Wells received his first contact from the entity known as Oxalk, who claimed to live on one of Jupiter's moons. Via this method, they also received notice of the first of their program sightings, when an automatic writing session led them into the Chilka Desert in Peru to encounter people from the planet Apu. At the appointed time and place, they witnessed a silver craft appear on cue, sail towards them, and pause hovering overhead. It remained for 15 minutes before departing. But who are these Apunians? Where do they come from and what do they really want? As it so happens, the contactees of Mission Rama and other similar groups all seem to have had contact with numerous named entities, many of which appeared to multiple groups, despite said organizations not operating in concert with each other. So it is important here that we stress that these entities have remained somewhat consistent in their messaging, appearance, and behavior, even when encounters are spread out among many groups and individuals, lending credence to the idea that they may actually be communicating with something. The Apunians are described as human-like, many so close to us that it is difficult to tell them apart from any other person on the street. However, some are enormously tall. Antarell, a central figure to this narrative, is reported as being anywhere between 8 and 11 feet tall. They are often said to dress in tight, metallic, one-piece suits, and are said to have blonde hair that is so pale and fine it looks almost like doll's hair, so they're Targaryens. Uh. I was about to say Amelia Clark is, <laughs> is an Apunian. <laughs> Other notable members of Antarell's entourage include a mostly normal-looking woman with the same pale blonde hair named Antioch a female commander of a ship named Ivika, a commonly reported entity named Godar, and the Mission Rama main contact point, Oxalk. Godar sounds like a Japanese cartoon from the 90s. I, it, it, it made me think of uh, Gozer the Destroyer from the first Ghostbusters. <laughs> That's all I was thinking about the whole time. <laughs> now, according to the messages these groups and individuals have received, the Apunians live within our solar system, but do not originate from there. In fact, the principal reason for their involvement with humanity is due to the similarities between our own history and theirs. Much like we are in the current day, the Apunians abused their planet, and eventually lost it. Now cosmic orphans, they have settled on some of the smaller celestial bodies within our system. Their contact is expressly designed to increase the conscious awareness of mankind to the point that we become cognizant of what we are doing and take steps to stop it before we make the same mistakes they did. And it is here, halfway into the book, that we finally begin the year-by-year -year review of the programmed encounters and Zendra openings that have been reported both during the Mount Shasta meditation exercises and beyond, beginning in 1994 with an incident reported by Dr. Stephen Greer's C-SETI investigation team during an expedition to Monterey, Mexico. There have been UFO reports in the area, and they had gone to investigate, when a series of vivid and nearly identical dreams hit three team members one night while they slept. The dreams predicted a UFO sighting the following day, as well as where and when it would occur, and in daylight they did find that location and set camp up there. The first two nights, as predicted, they witnessed several strange objects fly by at high altitude. However, it was on the third and fourth night that they attempted Greer's coherent thought-sequencing meditation exercise, 
now known by the trademark name CE5, in an attempt to initiate deeper contact with the intelligence behind the phenomenon. During this, they observed a bright streak of light across the sky shortly before a dense cloud seemed to materialize on parts of a nearby mountain, seemingly in an instant. Shortly thereafter, group members began seeing small, square-shouldered creatures creeping through the nearby bushes. Such creatures are often reported in the lead-up to a Zendra opening, and some believe they are akin to technicians here to help open the portal from our side. They were described as wearing rust-colored uniforms and standing at about knee height. Shortly after they were sighted, the group witnessed a strange bluish fog appear over a nearby area, seemingly emanating from the ground itself. This is the most common form a Zendra is said to take, looking like a foggy area inside which our space is commingling with the space of another place. In the center of this fog, they perceived a 10-foot-tall man with long silver hair and a tight-fitting blue uniform. A short telepathic communication occurred between the entity and the group, the contents of which were forgotten shortly after it occurred. Speaking on the encounter, one participant, Adamiak, is quoted as saying, quote, It was poignant and lovely. I cannot recall any of the actual words or specific communications. It was not a left-brained exchange, but it was beyond the bounds of linear thought. A year later, the first of many Mount Shasta Zendra openings occurred when a group of 50 people, led by visions of Ricardo Gonzalez, ascended the mountain, shared a meal of fruit, and engaged in group chanting. As with Greer's group, they were following guidance from a number of shared dreams they had had, and just as before, the Zendra opened. This one was described as an area of the ground that glowed with violet light. In groups of seven, they were allowed to enter the Zendra, the interior was reported as dark and confined, as if they were in a small box sunk deep underwater. While short and ultimately not too revelatory, the experience primed its participants for further contact and for future, more substantial trips into the Zendra. But before we get there, we have our second discussion question. So, looking at the experiences of these South American contactee groups, I can't help but notice the intermingling between the worlds of science and that of spirituality. The Zendras are often described expressly as technology. The Apunians fly starships and often speak of interstellar colonization, as one might expect from a purely nuts-and-bolts ET race. At the same time, we have ornate crystal initiations meant to channel cosmic forces to provide protection, telepathic communion, and a degree of religiosity which many Western ufologists shy away from. So, assuming for a moment that we can take all this at face value, what do you make of it? Is this experience technological, spiritual, or both? And what might that tell us about our visitors from Apu? Um, I'm leaning towards it's it's both. Um, it, it, taking all of this at face value, I am leaning towards it's both just based on... I, I'm drawing from the other non-nuts-and-bolts uh, alien research, like alien reading that we've done most of the most of the visitors that we've encountered in this sort of section of the community don't seem to differentiate between their science and their spirituality a lot of them like i'm thinking of um I, i'm thinking of like you know west whitley streber's visitors in particular if i'm getting my story straight seem to refer to any of their abilities as their technology and it's probably just because they are using a definition of technology that is not the one that first springs to mind for us. Because I don't even know what the literal dictionary definition of technology is. So, 
And he's looking it up. Of course I am. <laughs> so it's entirely possible that they just mean technology is any sort of it's any sort of tool or technique that we have developed through research and trial and error. And so the the dictionary definition is the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes, especially in industry. Yep. See? At, so they so probably uh it, it it's entirely possible that when they're talking about technology, they are still talking about things that they do with their brain. It's just things that they have learned to do with their brain as a species as a species over many, many thousands of years. And they might even mean like, oh no, not all of us can do this. This is training and it's really dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. And so I think this I think it's probably scientific and spiritual because based on what I know about the Apunians, the Lanulosians, and however, whatever Whitley Strieber's visitors would have been calling themselves in the end, they don't seem to differentiate between the scientific and the spiritual because many of them don't seem to be entirely physical. So why would they? Technology, they don't mean little boxes where you push a button and a thing comes out. They mean things that we have learned how to do through trial and error that are evidence-based that have been tested and retested and we know this works and we have access to it and we know how to put it to use and so why would why would they call that magic why would they draw a hard line down the middle between what is math and what is poetry you know it's interesting it reminds me uh, of there, so there's been some people who claim to have actually piloted UFOs, and one of the common tropes that comes out of those is that uh, the ship is alive, that they're they're connected to it somehow, and like when they're piloting it, they become the ship. It's not like they're they're turning a steering wheel; they're shifting their body, and the ship kind of becomes that body. So, I mean, another I like I like your uh, explanation there. I was just thinking another possibility is. What if scientific understanding of consciousness, once you have that, if consciousness is primary, if everything is a manifestation of consciousness, what if there is a point where technologically we learn to interface with the consciousness of, say, inanimate objects? And because of that, yes, ultimately, uh, it, is, it, is, it is spiritual because it is an aspect of consciousness. It is like psychic phenomenon. But it's we built machines that are capable of psychic abilities because we acknowledge that they have consciousness of their own and we designed them that way. That makes a lot of sense. That that actually really tracks. Hmm. Um, so I, I agree with uh, you, Jay. I think it's both. Um, but one thing that I was thinking about is a lot of uh, like the people that are involved in this seem to think or act like even the more spiritual side of it is very sciencey. Like they, True. they, they treat even like the crystal stuff. They're like, you have to be this way or this because otherwise, you know, whatever. Like, well, no, it's true. There's very hard rules to yeah. it. You know, you can, these are the acts you can engage in. These are when you can, and even, regarding losing the crystals through urine, they even specify you will lose it specifically after three months. Yeah. Um, 
And even like with the automatic writing, even they, they talk like, and maybe this is just like how Grant Cameron wrote it because he can, he comes from a very nuts and bolts background, but everything felt like it was trying to be explained with science, which when we're talking about people who are climbing a mountain to talk to aliens through meditation, it seems a little bit odd. That yeah. being like, and he even prefaced like this whole section, which he talked about a little bit with like science and studies that are close to these topics or different government agencies that have looked into these things to try and almost like uh, soften, like what, you know, soften the the weirdness that's about to come. Mute the woo. Yeah. Th- that being said, I think that there is a huge spiritual aspect of this whole thing. And Grant Cameron does write about that a little bit. And actually one of my favorite things that he said in this book he talks about how the left brain isn't as perfect as we think it is, that if it was, we wouldn't have so many political parties or so many disagreements. Um, and ultimately, I think he's right. And I think maybe that's the point. Um, I don't know that science is ever going to be able to fully explain what's happening here, and I'm sure that it's not going to in our lifetime. But and and I don't I don't know. I, I really hope I, you eat crow. I think you're right, but I really hope you're proven wrong. Yeah, I mean, me too. But I, I and honestly, I don't like I don't know that science will ever actually fully explain all of what's happening because I don't know that it can. Um, but maybe that's the point. Like maybe that's something that these visitors, by visiting us in these obscure, very different ways, are trying to tell us. Sometimes we have to let go of the logical explanation and just let it be that what it is is what it's going to be, that these aren't things that we can measure in the same way that we can with science, but they are things that we can do because, you know, at least at this point, we have no way of measuring an energy that we don't think that we don't even know exists, you know, or or, or anything like that. So. I, I do. I think it's both because there is a lot of interconnection between spirituality and, you know, what, what's, ha- like what's happening here. They use meditation as a tool to raise their vibrational levels. That's what they're saying that they're doing. We don't know that that's doing anything. Correct. We, they're, they're, this is based on nothing. Other than Buddhist and Hindu traditions, because they even go, they even use the Om. It's it's fundamentally a a religious action they're doing. Yeah. Yep. Oh, absolutely. What they're doing, like the meditation and saying Om, like that whole thing, that's that's Buddhist, right? Uh Om. It, om is Buddhist and Hindu. It is believed to be the sound that, uh, in in Hinduism specifically, it is believed to be the sound that Brahma that Brahman makes. Yeah, it, in in it Druidry, is... it's Awen, like you say Awen in the same the same way. Yeah. Um. It. it but it's the exact same thing. And uh, but what they specifically chose to do is of the Buddhist tradition. That's it. But they're doing it because it quote unquote raises our vibrational levels to be, maybe. At the same vibration, or the pro, or a proper vibration, or a different vibration that they can also interact with, but we think it's raising our vibration. We don't know that it's not lowering it to a different level that is making it easier for the for these demons to interact with us. <laughs> I was about to say, what if it's dragging us down to where the demons? Live? Well, I mean, right. Well, what's interesting there? Okay, so again, let's 
Let's uh, take a moment to sit with the thought that consciousness is primary. Consciousness is primary. Everything that we see interact with is ultimately uh, the construct of a thought. And if you adapt adopt that worldview, uh, then your thoughts are very real things. Mm-hmm. So it's not that that sound is raising their vibration. It's that they think it's raising their vibration makes it actually raise their vibration. Oh, I 100% think that's exactly what's happening. You know, it's, it's actually, uh, it's funny. It aligns pretty well with uh, my most recent crackpot theory that I was telling Jay about regarding uh, the visitors and general paranormality. Which is what if what if it is all you know our brains all this is thought constructs and what the paranormal is is their dreams they're there because dreams would be real physical things in some way and so what if sometimes they leak into our world yeah that's what we were we were talking about this a little bit off air yesterday or the day before or something because I was super high and I was rambling about how about the about dreams and how maybe like dreaming like us dreaming is interacting with their plane of existence. And when they interact with us, it's them dreaming. Yeah. I mean, especially if you consider the fact that very often the, the strangeness, it seems like dream logic. Yeah. Uh, things move in weird ways. Language changes while there's people are staring at it. Think about the shifting hieroglyphics seen Mm -hmm. on some craft. Uh, I mean, obviously we can't, we don't know that's the case, but I mean, it's an interesting thought. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. All right, so do we beat that one to death? Are we ready for section three? Yeah. Okay. Section three, trips to the other side. 2008 is where our primary sequence of Zendra opening experiences begin, and the hero of our first story is the mysterious Dr. Terry. A clinical psychologist by trade and spouse of a prominent figure in the neurological field, Dr. Terry has chosen to remain anonymous in these proceedings. According to Cameron, she, like many others involved in these events, is an antenna, a prime contactee who began receiving messages from non-human intelligences in 1985 while she was working through her Ph.D. program at Columbia University. She had just put her son to bed and settled in at the dining room table when a powerful compulsion came over her. She grabbed a nearby piece of paper and began automatic writing. The message she received was from the same entity that had often contacted Mission Rama, Oxalk. Note that this would have been 32 years before she met the Wells brothers or learned of their own contacts with an entity of the same name. This incident caused profound interchanges, such as a sudden and complete transition into becoming a vegetarian, which she believes helps heighten one's personal vibration, hence making contact easier. Dr. Terry witnessed her first Zendra in 2008, when she and her son attended an event held by Ricardo Gonzalez, the now annual meditation on Mount Shasta for world peace, an event which is said to occur at the express request of Antarel, and it is here that the program sightings occur on a yearly basis. She was sleeping one night when she received a psychic compulsion to leave her tent, whereupon she encountered Gonzalez, who had supposedly received the same message. They enter the woods where they came upon an area of bluish mist, the Zendra. Inside, they could see nothing, but once in, they felt themselves enveloped in a loving presence they identified as Antarel. During this, she was psychically given an exercise she was to lead the others in come morning, a meditation focused on preventing a series of catastrophes from decimating California later that year. We then jump to the 2014 Mount Shasta event, 
which is notable in that, according to the telepathic communications sent to Ricardo Gonzalez, there would be both a program sighting and an opportunity for direct physical contact with Antarel. Among the 100-plus other participants, they journeyed to the appointed spot on the slopes of Mount Shasta and conducted their group meditation exercise. That night, all perceived a bright orange object cruising the night sky along with a number of illuminated orbs. These orbs, dubbed canoplas in the Mission Rama literature, are seen as probes released by UFOs for testing and surveillance. Quote, These orbs appear as almost translucent spheres in photographs. Orbs can be manifestations of thought, reflections of humidity in the environment, suspended particles that reflect the flash of light from your camera in the photos. However, some can be entities where you can even see human faces in them. The physical contact was to occur the next night following a program sighting at 9 p.m. When the sighting did occur at the appointed time, Gonzalez did as he had been told and ventured alone into the forest. He heard laughter, and that sound led him to a clearing where he perceived a group of children. As he approached, they encircled him, joined hands, and began to spin around him faster and faster until they dissolved into a flash of light. He then found himself inside a large circular room, facing Antarel and Antioch, whom smiled and greeted him in person for the first time. The following year, 2013, another program of sighting occurred at the Shasta World Peace Meditation event, this one witnessed by ufologist Dr. Michael Sala and Giorgio Piacenza. They, along with others present, witnessed glowing, reddish-orange orbs appear and circle the group. As the group was led through a series of chants, strange lights began to move in the skies above, while a message from Michael Sala was received by Gonzalez, who in turn informed Sala that he had been invited because Antarel wanted him to use his skills to help further spread the message of peace and ecological responsibility. 2014 saw another development in the ongoing saga of contact, direct face-to-face encounters between Antarel and multiple witnesses. Italian ufologist Paola Harris was in attendance at this event, along with 115 others, including six intuitive individuals who arrived bearing the same message about the date and time at which the next program sighting was to occur. At the appointed time of 10.30 p.m., the gathered witnesses saw two UFOs passing by overhead, shortly after which Gonzalez led those gathered in a traditional Ohm chant to raise their vibrational energy. While the main group chanted, Gonzalez, following instructions from Antarel, gathered a small group of select individuals and took them into the forest, following the direction the UFOs had gone. The group, which included Harris, found a small clearing that was filled with an anomalous glowing mist that seemed to emanate from the ground. As they approached, they all suddenly perceived a nine- to ten-foot-tall human figure standing in its center, Antarel. All ten of those who Gonzalez had invited could see him, though, interestingly, one unselected man who had discreetly followed the group could not. As Harris described it, she and two other women were encouraged to enter the Zendra area hand-in-hand. The memories of the participants grows a little distorted from there. Harris and the others recall hearing Antarel speak, his voice having an odd echoing quality, though they couldn't recall what he said save for the final statement of thank you before he vanished as mysteriously as he'd arrived. This event was repeated and expanded upon the following year in 2016. This time, Harris had been with Gonzalez in Crestone, Colorado, when he received a message from Antarel regarding a program sighting set for the following night, which Harris and six others did witness. 
He also received word that a program sighting would occur the following weekend at the Mount Shasta gathering. While Antarell reportedly requested Harris's presence specifically, Sheet said she'd be unable to attend due to prior commitments. However, she soon reversed course as, over the following days, she received several mysterious phone calls from friends' phones that connected to nothing but dead air. This, accompanied with an increasingly persistent sense of unattributed anxiety, eventually drove her to canceling her previous plans and making the long drive to Shasta. 180 people attended the gathering that year, among them Ray Hernandez of Dr. Edgar Mitchell's Free Foundation, Sergio Lubb of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and Dr. Joseph Burke, an experiencer and former coordinator for Greer C. SETI Group. As before, Gonzalez led those gathered into the evening's meditation and energy-raising exercises, and then quietly pulled a small group of people, including Harris, to venture off into the woods to again meet Antarell. Harris, still badly shaken from the previous year's encounter, was terrified. Quote, I think the first time you don't know what is going on, and the second time you kind of dread it because you know there's going to be an event, and you don't know what to do because you already had it one time and you don't know how to deal with it. At a certain spot in the woods, the group witnessed a shaft of brilliant light descend from the heavens. Inside of it, the group could see what appeared to be a translucent hologram of Antarell and his fellow Apunians. As they marveled at this, others in the group began to notice small, big-eyed greys lurking in the woods around them, peeking playfully out from behind trees. As before, Harris was nearly frozen in uncontrollable fear. In the months and years to follow, she would come to deeply regret how she handled the situation. On her way home, Harris stopped in Reno for the night, where she received hourly calls from an eerie robotic voice that stated simply, If you lead, we will match your efforts. A statement she came to understand meant that Antarell and his compatriots sought contact with her and wanted to work to alleviate her fear by moving at a pace she was comfortable with. If she sought them, they would respond. Once back home, the visitors seemed to hover at the edges of her life. She'd hear her name called from empty rooms, receive phone calls containing odd sequences of beeps, and experience other phenomenon more typical to tales of ghosts and specters. Where all this is leading, Harris doesn't know, but when Cameron asked if she believes she is being led to fulfill some purpose or task, she replied in the affirmative. Quote, I believe I am getting direction. I believe I am getting support because the UFO field is crazy. They are not using their minds to understand the UFO contact as contact. You have a responsibility. If you meet someone here, it is not because Antarell just wants to meet you. He wants you to do something. Usually, what he wants you to do is somehow raise consciousness on the planet so we won't go in the wrong direction as they did. Which brings us to our third discussion question. So, I want to take a moment here for us to discuss the potential reasons why Antarell and his fellow Apunians would trust such an important message to a relatively small group of people. After all, surely they could broadcast the message to screens around the world, or maybe even directly into our minds. So what purpose does it serve to only initiate contact with handfuls of people who, Antarell must know by now, are discounted and ignored by the majority of the population? So this is one of the things that really baffles me about a lot of contactee stories. Um, Especially the ones that have like a, a grand message, right? Like this grand message to the universe. Uh, if you're going to handpick anyone in the world to deliver this message, why these people? Like, what is it about these people specifically? And why does it seem like they are called out so intentionally? Like I, uh, we mentioned uh, pre- in the previous question, 
uh, Grant and Paula specifically get called out by Andrea. And I would imagine that it's the goal is to spread this message as far and wide. Now, Paula Harris and Grant Cameron both have a decent-sized influence, so I could see that being the reasoning. Uh, so the entities are picking these people that are going to get the message out into the world. Um, and the and specifically, especially for like thinking about like Paula Harris, somebody who's going to be good against uh, fighting against the stigma and pushback that you get just by being involved in this community, because that is something that she specifically has had to fight against a lot, and a lot of it is kind of her own fault but that's not neither here nor there she's a very trusting person yeah well, <laughs> she still hasn't backed down on believing billy meyer who's a known fraud and uh yeah cult leader paula <laughs> like an actual cult leader paula I, I believe the only statement she's made is she wasn't aware of that when she made the statements yeah but she all but she called him the real deal and hasn't gone back on that which is, in my opinion, a problem, because he is very problematic. Just as a, and as an aside, he's one of the people that blame Jewish people for everything. Ah! Yeah. yeah. So he he is a legit problem. He is part of the division of ufology that actually, fortunately, if you follow it back, has heavy roots in uh in the Silver Shirts. Yeah. In uh, Dudley's racist occult organization, Pelly. Pelly. Yeah. Not Dudley. Pelly. William Dudley Pelly. Oh, there we go. I had the middle. I only remembered the middle name of all the names. Um, now while Andriel, I guess going back to the actual question at hand here, oh, uh, while he seems to have like telepathic powers, or at least is able to communicate to some, assuming that these people aren't liars, of course, he can communicate at least when, uh, like Ricardo does channeling, so via like the auto writing. And he comes to people in their he's come to people in their dreams, but it's not everybody. So maybe he asked to uh, like see you or make contact with you before he can do the fancier forms of communication, or you have to be an intuitive already before he can have those kind of interactions with you. So in his own way, Antriel is building his own cult, one soul at a time. <laughs> And eventually his goal would be to see us all so that he can control the world. Okay, he needs to study our cult leaders because we do it way better than he does. Way better. We do it so fast and so efficiently, and we can do it by accident over Reddit. Maybe, maybe that's... <laughs> true. Maybe that's maybe that's why aliens kind of are, are a little gun-shy and showing themselves to us. is like, we don't get it. Those people, they can just talk you into anything. Well, I went down there for five minutes and became a Catholic. Well, and how do you... How, I mean, I mean, if they're at, if they're observing all of humanity, how many times have they delivered a message to somebody, quote unquote, delivered a message to somebody, and that person turned around and created a cult? Right. It, it, you know, that's actually a good point. It could we could be in a situation where the contradictions that we see are because, yeah, hippie space brothers are real. They are genuinely great people. It's just that. It's not that they're using imperfect tools. It's that there are no perfect tools on right. this planet. They're, they're, their only tool is us, and we are so imperfect. Every single person, no matter how good they are, once you give them this responsibility, they it takes like three seconds for them to believe they're God. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, like, like for real, though, because there's so few, it seems like, that 
don't become this kind of cult of personality that 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 ends up having almost a cult like following and 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 that spreads out into other forms of paranormality because even um even the Newkirks people think of them as cult leaders yeah and for the fucking museum and it's like really oh. it's literally just a bunch of nerds much like grooming and gaslighting, people have been throwing around the word cult so constantly. If it's just like, J.C. Penny is this cult, it's, I'm going to shoot you on the I, White House lawn. You know, here's noon. the thing. I am not uh, yet a museum member, but I have heard some of the live streams that, you guys, that you've been listened to, Rory. And not once have I heard Greg Newkirk saying, you know what you should do? Uh, you should d- disown your entire family and move on to our museum compound and give me all of your money. Exactly. In yeah. fact, he turns away our money all the time because we already pay like the Patreon fees. And he sits there and he's just like, it, they are, they're like, not to toot, like, not, not to like prop them up anymore because they are, you know, they're, they're obviously very popular, but. They're genuinely some of the the best people I've ever met in this community, and if they ever listen to this, know that we're a, that at least you know I, I would say that we're all a fan. The of, new Kirks are chill. I like yeah. the new Kirks. No, they're they're great, and Hellier is one of the better paranormal products that's been made. And I they would, made it for twelve dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, and they, and and you know what? And even more so, they gave it away for free. Yeah, they spent twelve dollars and lost seven thousand. <laughs> 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 I, I, I think they spent more than $12 on it. The, the cameras that uh, Carl Pfeiffer used alone cost more than that, but, you know, maybe not by much. Uh, oh, my turn. Um, yeah, we do have a question you're supposed yes, to answer. Yes, I am aware. Okay, so I am going to return to one of my favorite conspiracy theories, Space PETA. Uh. <laughs> Here we go. Um, no, legitimately, I I think there is a leg- I part of me feels emotionally that there's not a lot of evidence for this because there's not a lot of evidence for any of my theories. Um, emotionally, I think it would be really funny if it turns out the reason that Antarell and Injured Cold and all these other guys that uh, keep showing up and trying to talk to everyone who's not the government and being like, you have to fix the planet to some 12 year old in South Africa instead of to, you know, the United Nations. I legitimately think that every single one of those visitors has been a random civilian who decided that they knew better than their government on their home planet. And they're like, I know how to fix Earth. And they packed a picnic basket <laughs> in, their, in their craft. And they flew here. And they just found the first random asshole who was psychic enough to see them. And they're like, you need to get rid of the nukes. And the person is like, I am a farmer <laughs> in China. <laughs> I can't. I can't do that, but okay, I'll I'll make a Twitter about it. Like I'll <laughs> I'll do an internet about it. And meanwhile, the government of Apu is just like, we are begging you. <laughs> we are begging you to leave the humans alone. They're an incredibly volatile species. And and look at that. Antrell, look, what is that? It's a cult leader. It's a cult leader, Antrell. <laughs> what do you know? We got another one. <laughs> So, no, I I legitimately, I think that is legitimately what ha- what's happening is that they don't have access 
to the better known people. They don't have access to the people in power. Or if they do gain access to those people in power, the minute they leave, their government calls the person in power that they spoke to and were like, yeah, no, don't. No, he wasn't supposed to do that. We're sorry. We don't have prisons here because we're not barbarians like you guys. So we can't lock him up anywhere. So ignore his texts, maybe. Yeah, it, it's it's also possible. I was thinking about this. So what if they they do try to contact people who are more in the know or people who have the power to actually enact some change? And those people basically promptly ignore the message because it runs contrary to their own agenda mm-hmm. or to their their own pocketbook. Also possible. I mean, or even let's say you they try to contact people who have, say, more influence. Let's say they uh, they abduct Stephen King one day and they're like, we want you to use your platform to spread this message. I, I mean, I, I don't know where where King falls on on UFOs, but. A lot of people who have platforms of that size, I could see them being like, no, I'm not going to ruin everything I've built and stigmatize myself by by jumping on your bandwagon. Look uh, what yeah, happened absolutely. to Streber. Yeah. No, that's true. That's, that's a really good, that's the perfect example. Yeah, because, I mean, again, I can't stress this enough. If you go back and look at the book reviews from pre-communion and things like that, I mean, he was on track to being one of those, you know, I guess uh, hallmark names in horror literature. People, yeah. uh, people, uh, sometimes in some articles refer to him as another Stephen King or another Dean Koontz, and which n- is high, the highest of praise. I mean, in terms of horror, yeah. Even though I'm not that big of a Dean Koontz fan, he, God, he's produced a lot of really successful books. I, I've read a few of them, and I, I, I liked what I read. I, I'm. It's very different from what I what I normally read. I like some of his stuff. Yeah. I not all. Like I like the first Odd Thomas book, and I like a couple others yeah. in there. I I liked yeah I liked Odd Thomas. I can't remember some of the other. My grandma was a real real big Dean, Dean Koontz fan, so because she gave me most of my books growing up, I ended up reading a bunch. <laughs> now I I guess back to the question at hand. Um. I did have I did have two more thoughts that I or two more possibilities I wanted to forward. The first is again taking a step back and looking at, at this from the direction of Keel. Uh they're giving this message to these people because these are the people they can dupe. And maybe it has nothing to do with the message they're giving. They're getting something else out of these people. Yeah. Maybe they're harvesting their psychic energy from the uh meditation in order to fuel their microwave to make space hot pockets or yeah. something. I had that thought too that, you know, they are really they're just using us and they're spreading this positive sounding message because it lures us in. And but really they're just they're just farming us for our, our mental meats. Yep. And the other idea I had was that what if it really it it doesn't matter what tool you use because it's not about the individual now so there's this concept that gets brought up later in the book and let's we're not we're going to try not to get sidetracked by it now because lord knows we're going to have a lot to say about it later of uh, this concept of oneness versus separation and that oh, a lot yeah. of the messaging that seems to come from Antarell and uh, other messages that have come to other contactees is that. On this planet, we live with this illusion of separation, that Jay and I are different things, that I'm different from the clothes I'm wearing, the table uh, in front of me, the microphone I'm speaking into. But in truth, it's all a tapestry. It's all part of the same thing. We are one. Um, so what if in that sense, what they're really doing there is it what they tell these people ultimately doesn't matter. What these people do ultimately doesn't matter. 
because they're simply injecting an influence kind of into the group uh, collective unconsciousness of Earth. Like maybe it doesn't matter that these individuals uh, are you know are who they are, or even if they, in the case of say like Greer, or if uh, your vibes on Gonzalez are correct, it doesn't matter if they abuse their position or misinterpret the message, because what's more important is I, I guess the vibrational energy they've injected into the human unconsciousness, and maybe at a certain point, it, it kind of becomes a critical mass, and it will suddenly affect the whole world. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I know what to say. That still sounds like space, PETA. It doesn't matter what atrocities we commit in the meantime, we will give dogs the right to vote. <laughs> okay, are we ready for section four? Yes. Section four of flashing lights and Facebook trolls. 2016 was a unique year for the Mount Shasta gathering, as for the first time, Antarell declined to pass along word of any programmed encounter. Rather, citing the presence of too many watchers, Antarell indicated, oh god, too many watchers. The cops were after him. The cops are after space, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> He's just hightailing it away in his they even, I'm sorry, I just, it just hit me because Grant Cameron even called out how strange it was that Antarell didn't want to come because there's too many watchers just, to an event with hundreds of people that he's been coming to for years. They're just chasing him in circles around Jupiter and they're like, you have to leave the humans alone. He's like, never, they're adorable. I love them. He's just hiding out in his stoner cousin Greg's basement. <laughs> I love the idea of an Apudian named Craig. <laughs> However, that is not to say that the year was entirely without incident, albeit less impressive than the opening of giant interdimensional mist doors. One of the participants, a woman named Claudia from Mexico, was down the mountain in Shasta City shopping at a New Age store when she encountered an eight-foot-tall woman with short platinum blonde hair, blue eyes, and a somewhat feline face. Stranger still, the woman seemed to be standing inside a faintly visible bubble that somehow separated her from physical reality. She soon realized that she was the only one in the store who could see the vision. When she later described it to Gonzalez, he noted that her description matched that of the Apunian known as Ivica. A little later that year, in September, Gonzalez led a group of 70 others into the Atacama Desert in Chile, pursuing a program sighting. Harris was present for this one as well. They held a meditation until Gonzalez, following a psychic cue, ventured into the desert alone. Those that were left behind perceived what they described as a Star Trek-style teleportation light effect that occurred atop the dune Gonzalez had just crested, from which Antarell and the other Apunians materialized. The visitors did not approach, but rather watched the group from afar. Eventually, they vanished as mysteriously as they had arrived. When Ricardo returned, his body was emanating a powerful heat and he seemed deeply drained. Speaking of his experience, quote, it is yet too soon to write about everything regarding the contact experience I underwent. What I can advance is that the Apunians activated an immense fractal zone, or natural holographic door, that allowed me to visit or roam their world of origin, not planet Apu, which is alien from the galaxy we occupy. It is here that Cameron takes an aside to discuss a question that sits at the heart of these encounters, free will. After all, if Antrell is so invested in helping us avert calamity, and clearly has technology and abilities that far outstrip our own, why hasn't he just fixed things yet? 
This is where we begin seeing hints of a topic that will be discussed more fully later in the book concerning what Cameron calls the illusion of separation versus oneness. Quote, Antarell simply brings messages and warnings. He is not here to do anything. If he chose to fix this mess, we would simply start another dispute, as we live in a world that believes strongly in separation rather than oneness. All that we consider evil is caused by the belief in separation. Like children, we must do our homework and write our exams. If we fail, we simply repeat the grade. We have eternity to figure it out. In much the same way, Antarell won't force an encounter on anyone who is unwilling, which makes him a bit more ethical than many of the home-invading visitors we've read about thus far in our show. <laughs> and this finally brings us to 2017, and the Mount Shasta gathering that Grant Cameron himself was present for. Cameron had been invited in previous years, though for various reasons had not wanted to or been able to attend. In 2016, that changed when he met a Mount Shasta veteran, Katarina Castillo, and on her recommendation decided to take his assistant, Desta Barnaby, and make the drive up for the 2017 gathering. And even before they arrived, contact began. Conveying a message given to her from Antarell via Gonzalez, Harris called Cameron to inform him that Antarell knew he was coming and that there would be a program sighting on Saturday night specifically for him to see. Cameron soon posted this development to his Facebook page, whereupon a venerable army of professional debunkers and skeptics descended upon his post to call Gonzalez a fraud, claim that Cameron was sullying his good name by falling for an obvious con, and asserting before the event even happened that any lights he saw would be due to satellites. On this, Cameron writes, quote, I replied as I would to any post where people have strong beliefs that led them to make conclusions before anything has even happened. They are the people that Stanton Freeman described as the people who don't want to be bothered with the evidence as their minds are already made up. The first night they arrived, there were some sightings of odd lights in the sky, but these occurred after Cameron had gone to bed. However, the following night, the program sighting occurred, as promised, promptly at the predicted time of 9.33 p.m. Cameron had been sitting in a circle with the rest of the attendees when a series of flashes began to light up the sky directly over his head. Quote, of the eight flashes, I only saw about half of them because I kept looking down. I did hear the group cheer as each new flash occurred. The one big flash, some said was blue, raised an especially big cheer, and I missed it. Following the flashes, Gonzalez received a message via automatic writing. While the flashes had impressed Cameron, it was this that he was most deeply fascinated by. Gonzalez wrote without looking at the page in an odd, tilted script, writing at a lunatic, frenzied speed. The first message was from Antarell and claimed that the flashes were created specifically to assure Cameron that all of this was real and to give him a few more puzzle pieces to help decode the UFO mystery via some sort of psychic informational packet that he'd be able to understand at a later time. Quote, We placed one of our spaceships above the group's location. The powerful pulse you have felt has not only been an interaction mechanism with you, but also an information vehicle, an archive which has subtly been seated in many of those present. You will know how to decode what you have received in due time. Other events were reported that weekend by other witnesses. Some participants claimed to witness shadow figures watching from the woods and nearby hills. Michael Sala and a few others encountered an area in the woods that seemed to be draped in a blanket of liquid light. Across the street, a Mission Rama group reportedly witnessed numerous flashing craft in the sky and psychic communications from an entity known as Archer of Ganymede. The following night, during a meditation exercise, Several witnesses saw a tall man in a skin-tight silver suit 
briefly appear through a screen of light or a tear in the air. One of the people in attendance, Jeff Sell, managed to snap a photo of what looks to be a V-shaped tear opening in the air behind the group. Though, as one might predict, none of this was enough for the debunkers Cameron had alluded to earlier, who were already sharpening their pitchforks. Before we get there, we're going to have our fourth discussion question. Okay, so even in the context of this show, this story is wild. We have hundreds of witnesses to ongoing contact with a shared cast of characters, portals, psychic phenomenon, visions of the visitors aiding or dead in transitioning to the next world, holographic visionary displays, shadow people, greys, and even more strangeness I didn't have time to get at in the summary. That's where Swan was. (laughs) (laughs) With all that in mind, let's return to the idea of the circus. Do you agree with Cameron's assessment that all that strangeness is meant to ensure the story is memorable and hence spread? Or could it instead create a smokescreen of noise that inadvertently or intentionally buries the original intent of the contact experience? I think there is definitely something there about the idea of making the story memorable, uh, especially with the idea of wanting to shift kind of the the vibrational frequency of the entire collective unconsciousness. You kind of need a splash if you want to make tidal waves in the pool, you know? Um, So I, I, I can absolutely buy that. Um, and it's it it's good humans are humans crave novelty to such an extent that it's entirely possible that we would find just a standard alien just boring if they weren't like flashing lights and being like i can escort the dead to the afterlife it's like all right can you also charge my phone <laughs> uh like i need some utility out of this buddy um part of me also is and it's this is strange coming from me since I tend to get now whenever other people try to make this comparison. It does kind of remind me of the Fae and their whole thing about just like I have to make an entrance because if people aren't looking at me, I die. <laughs> like part of me thinks that it's like maybe they just do that and it's not necessarily for our benefit. Maybe they're they're just from a culture or a species or just a plane of existence where if you are capable of doing something like that, why wouldn't you? Like, this is your entrance music. This is how you announce yourself. Like, I feel like sometimes we, we as researchers tend to read, almost read too much into some of these things, and we're trying to constantly decipher the the exact meaning and the exact calculation that goes into all of the visitors' actions, and maybe they just do that. True. Well, I mean, and that that is uh, one thought I had in regards to this question of what if the reason it's all so strange is because uh, actual reality, whatever that means, is even weirder in the sense of like, what if this is saying, hey, if you can't handle this you're never going to be ready for the next step. Kind of like getting you acclimated to what you're about to step into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you, know, t- you know, we think right now shadow people and telepathic communications, but nope, it's just turtles. Turtles all the way down. I feel like that's not that weird. I, I don't know. If I found out the universe was literally balanced on the back of a giant turtle and that turtle was balanced on the back of another turtle and it's just turtle after turtle going on forever, I have more questions. So Stephen King was right. That's a much older thing than Stephen King. I know. 
But that said, yes, behold the turtle of enormous girth on his shell, he holds the earth. Yep. I think that, like, I, 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 I think both of what you what you guys just said is very viable. But a lot of it almost feels confused. That was kind of like my, my thought behind it. Like, all of this is happening, and maybe it's because there is there is so much, like, unsurety amongst those that are there uh, that the the others are almost just kind of throwing shit at the wall, you know, seeing what's gonna what what's gonna gather people's attention. They're trying to gauge what what works and what doesn't, because you know whatever they were doing before obviously wasn't working, or if it was, it wasn't working enough. So they're just like, well, let's do more. Or maybe going back to something that I said earlier, it's because of the each individual's own personal whatevers, you know, their their upbringing, their subconscious thoughts that all of this random shit is just interacting because all of these different people are coming in with these different ideas of what might happen and different intentions. So we're seeing a hundred million different things. Yeah. I mean, I also, I wonder if it's possible that what we're seeing there is all right, so Antarell sends a message to some people, gets them all to come here, raise a bunch of energy. What if, I mean, in the spirit world, that's like a beacon, and we're getting other agents coming in with different agendas right. who operate differently. Maybe some are there to act like parasites to you know, siphon off some of the energy that's being raised. Maybe some of them are there because they are trying to operate against what Antarell is saying. Yeah. So they're there to try to spread confused messages. Yeah, it could be just a bunch of other entities piggybacking on this, uh, on the, the portal or whatever is opening because... Uh, because Antriel is opening it, you know, so consistently even, you know, so other entities, creatures, things are, are seeing this and piggybacking on it because maybe they don't have as much control over it as they like to present that they might, you know. Also, if, if Antriel and the, uh, and others like him are not native to this planet and they show up and they start creating these huge beacons of energy, there might be things here that have existed for millions of years whose entire job is to keep those things in balance. They might be running over going, what What are you doing? No, what are you doing? Right. Yeah. It's possible. I mean, that said, I, I do have the uh, worry in my head, I suppose, that, if, you know, again, we go back to John Keel, that um, this is a cosmic joke being played yeah. on these poor people. Yeah. In the sense of, all right, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, boiling a frog. You know, they, they you know, supposedly they don't know they're being boiled till it's too late, even though that's been proven not true. It's horrifying. Uh, but beyond that, you know, we say, all right, well, I got you to accept that you that automatic writing is real. Well, can I can I get you to go into the desert to see a UFO? I can. OK, I'll show you a UFO. Can I get you to accept giant mist doors? I can. Great. Let's see how far I can push you before you snap. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, we go back to Operation Trojan Horse. We had. Stories in there of contactees once they were, uh, once their predictions fell through, ended up resorting to incredible acts of violence. Yeah, uh, yeah, up to and start up to and including starting murder cults. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be one of the the go to reactions. Start a cult. Um, though one thing, and I don't remember if I brought it up, but just something that I I don't know if it, it was like rubbed me the wrong way or this I don't know. Is one of the things that uh, 
happened repeatedly that made me sus that I just wanted to bring up, and I feel like this is a good as good a time as any. And it's in these experiences, we have hundreds of people there, 180 people there, um, and all of them see like the UFOs. Sometimes they'll see like the 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 the, the V, the, you know, the separation, and but only the select few actually get to go back into the woods and see Antriel and and uh, you know see all this other stuff. Is you know seven people usually seven to what was it seven to uh, eleven people or whatever. So the first Mount Shasta, all fifty got to see the Zendra because they were sent in in groups of seven at a right. time. But after that, yeah, it was and and that that did not involve any direct sighting of Antriel or the Apunians. Any sighting of them occurred with small groups. Right. Um. And so I just, I, that is the part that all, that, that just may always made my eyebrows go like, like, or made my one eyebrow go up in, in a question. Like, why is it only these few people? Like, you've got 180 people here that are all here to experience this thing, but you're only taking these seven people that you've handpicked or that Antriel handpicked through you. Right. To go back here to to witness him. And of those people is almost always the quote unquote famous people or right. the, the ones with reach, you know, and uh, that to me is a red flag. Yeah. I mean, well, and I, it might be how the scene was described and set up, but I definitely kind of got this image. You know, uh, Ricardo led them into the Ohm chant and then once everyone's chanting, quietly pulling people aside, right. to go off to the private member bar. You know, it 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 definitely does uh, kind of a uh, smacks of a uh, clickish behavior that I've yeah. seen in certain organizations I've been in, where it's like, yeah, all you plebes, get on with that. We're gonna go do the real stuff. Right. No, it, it's exactly. It's it feels like an old boys club kind of move. You know. And, yeah. And I don't want to keep harping on on that, but it, I just thought that that was like important to bring up. Yo, absolutely. And again, we go back to, I go back to, we weren't there. Uh, so I have to accept that, sure, maybe everything's on the level. From what's being presented here, it doesn't sound like it. Yeah, at no, the, I at, agree. at the very, I will say, because of the several hundred people who saw the UFOs, because of having these shared names cropping up among different contactees, I think there's something happening here. I, I just don't know if Ricardo Gonzalez has the actual capital T truth of yeah. the matter. I yeah. Either he could be being lied to, he could be misinterpreting things either willfully or, or unconsciously. It could be some sort of error in translation where the message comes to him at a consciousness level, but then it gets filtered through the ego or something like that. Um, I, I, I think yeah, there's, there's something really murky about this, and especially... I, there, all right, this goes back to one of my one of my really only true core complaints of the book, and this I I don't think is is uh, Grant Cameron's fault because it sounds like this is just the information he had available, but so many of these experiences just end yeah. without any resolution. Like we saw Antarell moving to the next year. What happened? Where did he go? Wait, where did you interact? Did you fuck? I want to know. Yeah, uh, yeah, and like the way that I read it. In a lot of a lot of times, like yeah, they had this interaction. Sometimes he spoke, sometimes he didn't, and then that was it. And yeah, that was the whole that was the whole thing. 
It's entirely possible Ricardo Gonzalez was telling him very specifically what he was and was not allowed to relay to readers because that is also a cult tactic is withholding the actual information about what you're doing. True. True. I, I but I mean, that said, we do also have Paula Harris as a point of view uh, contact. And I, I, it could also be I, I have to leave this room room for the idea that maybe being in a Zendra communicating with these beings is so far outside the paradigm of humanity it defies words it's nothing they can describe or maybe even consciously remember uh we had a quote earlier from someone who had a conversation with Antarel, but said it goes beyond linear thought this isn't something that can be described in our very limited language and that's possible but if if that was the case in all these scenarios don't you think you'd at least try to relay that instead of just ending it yeah I mean, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't have an answer. Oh no, I know. I'm just <laughs> I'm throwing I, shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. No, absolutely. That's all we're. That's all any of us are doing. All right. Are we? Are we? Uh, are we sated on that question? Yep. All right. Let's move into our fifth and final section: debunkers and conclusions. In the final few chapters, Cameron steps away from the Shasta narrative to discuss a hodgepodge of related topics starting with the debunkers who came out of the woodwork following the posting of his experiences to his Facebook page. Quote, Like many counter-explanations made by people who want to provide contrary explanations, they were not present when the observations were made. They've simply grabbed the first explanation produced by their left-brain storyteller without checking if the explanation is in any way valid. This concept of the left-brain storyteller is worthy of a quick aside. Conceived of by a Dr. Michael Gazaniga, who is building upon the work of Nobel Prize recipient Dr. Roger Sperry's research into split-brained patients, the left-brain storyteller hypothesis posits that the left side of the brain primarily works to solve inconsistencies in our personal narrative by filling any perceived gaps with any details that allow one to maintain their current worldview. Hence, we perceive a consistent reality even if we are ultimately only stitching together subjective bits of truth with falsifiable connective tissue. The debunkers concluded that the flashes Cameron had seen were caused by satellites, reflecting light from high above, an explanation which falls apart upon even a cursory review of the potential culprits. The first being low-altitude satellites, which are known to brightly reflect sunlight in the hour before sunrise and the hour after sunset. However, the flashes Cameron witnessed occurred safely outside that window. Another possibility are iridium satellites, about a hundred of which are currently orbiting the planet. These satellites consist of three mirrored sides which have been seen to shine brighter than any other celestial body when reflecting sunlight. But this too falls apart when faced with reality. Iridium satellites have a consistent, predictable pattern that allows one to determine the exact time and duration during which these flashes will occur. Such information is even publicly accessible on the internet, and, as you might have guessed, there were no predicted flashes above Mount Shasta that night. Furthermore, even if there had been, the Iridium satellites do not strobe like the flashes he witnessed. Rather, they emit one bright flash, lasting no longer than a single second. The final possibility is that the flashes were caused by communication satellites, which orbit the Earth in geostationary orbit, allowing them to settle over one location and remain there. Such an object could then, while rotating in space, repeatedly reflect sunlight from over the horizon. However, as before, this explanation is devoid of even a basic understanding of how these satellites work. Geostationary satellites do not rotate, 
Even if they did, they are an average 35,000 kilometers above the Earth. Quote, the claim then is that a person can see this satellite, the distance of 7.2 times the width of the United States away, as long as the sun is shining on them. The fact that there are no known communication satellites in the skies directly above Shasta is just the cherry on top. Though, more than just shooting down debunkers theories, Cameron notes that there is good reason to believe these narratives due both to the large number of witnesses, including independent scientists and journalists, and the eerie consistency found between the accounts from different South American contact groups. These include Zendras, communications from a shared cast of E.T. characters, experiences of dizziness or nausea while inside a Zendra, lost time from Zendra exposure, the use of automatic writing and communications, and the reliance on prime contactees to initiate the contact. Furthermore, every single one of these groups uses meditation as the key mode by which they raise their energy and initiate the contact experience. Meditation based primarily in the principle of oneness. Quote, the oneness principle is one that is used in the yogic greeting of namaste. My soul honors your soul. I honor the place in you where the entire universe resides. I honor the light, love, truth, beauty, and peace within you because it is also within me. We are united. We are the same. We are one. It is this concept of oneness that seems to sit at the core of these contact experiences and which has been echoed by many who have undergone near-death experiences. As Antarel and our dead have repeatedly claimed, it is the illusion of separation which sits at the heart of the evils of the world. According to a free foundation survey of experiencers, a full 54% report of being spoken to about this very topic. The core idea here is that there is no difference between individuals, between people and places, between the one and the everything. We are all part of a single tapestry of existence. Beliefs to the contrary allow one to see others as lesser, or evil, and hence enables our prejudice, wars, and acts of barbarity. Quote, if the belief in separation is dropped, all of what we deem evil would instantly disappear. All wars would end. It would fulfill the goal of Antarell and his crew. How can you steal from someone if you truly believe he or she is part of you? How can you start a war if you realize they are part of you? A quote which I would counter by pointing out the human tendency towards self-harm and self-destruction, but I digress. Now, all of this may sound a little too fantastic for most. For sure, even my credulity is often stretched to the breaking point by messages of love and peace from hippie space brothers. But one must also remember that these program sightings have occurred with consistency and have followed their own internal logic. The sightings occur when and where they are predicted, down to the minute, and often involve individuals who are not part of the participating groups and are in fact highly skeptical of the entire idea. More importantly, as strange as they may sound, the ideas espoused by Antarell and the other Apunians are reflected in many other contactee stories. So for a moment, I'd ask you to sit with that message and entertain it for a time. The message is that we are at a very dangerous stage in our development as a species. One path leads to ruin, the other to a harmonious future among a large community of like-minded beings. Closing out, we are left with one final message from Antarell, a man from beyond the stars who passed it along to Gonzalez, who passed it along to Cameron, who brought it to us via this book, and in turn to you, our listener. Quote, Many of us left or lost our world of origin, traveling very far until we reached Earth. We live our lives traveling from one base to another, whether it is in this orbital base or a secret place on your world. We lost the consciousness of home and relay this to you with much respect, 
For that very reason, we also feel part of a movement of achieving planetary peace, because everything that happens here affects us. Which brings us to our fifth discussion question. So let's discuss this idea of separation versus oneness and what I see to be the critical point of contention within that philosophy. As Cameron writes, quote, I believe that there are no evil races that need to be put in the gas chamber. Even if there was evil, we would be better off to believe it does not exist. Too many people have died because of the belief that some are evil and must be eliminated. There has been enough death and destruction in the name of good stamping out evil. Now, assuming for a moment that the oneness versus illusion of separation idea reflects actual reality, I ask, what are we meant to do when we witness others engaging in acts of violence and terror upon a defenseless individual or population? If stopping them is an equal act of evil, are Antarel and the Apunians implying that we should do nothing as not to add to an already vile act? Or is leaving the defenseless to be brutalized another form of cosmic self-harm akin to allowing a cancer to devour your organs? Um, I definitely lean more towards the second one. I, I'm sorry. There is no force in this universe that will make me believe that people do not have the right to defend themselves. And I know, I, and, and no, in, in case someone is listening and wants to take my words out of context or twist them, of course, I'm not advocating for freaking genocide. I, I, I'm not saying that there are any races or entire groups of people that need to be wiped out. I'm just saying if somebody comes at you with a knife, you don't have to stand there peaceably and let them stab you to death. You are allowed to hit them with a frying pan and then keep hitting them because they're larger than you. It's, it's fine. You're allowed to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd also forward you're allowed to defend others. Yes, like if I'm, absolutely. If we're walking down the street and you see somebody being brutalized, in my opinion, it's on you to do something because you're the one with the power to do it. You're there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just it's just so odd to hear this supposedly enlightened being from beyond the stars who is constantly coming here and interfering with our development to then stick his nose that I presume he has in the air and to just be like, well, you can't really make that decision for other people. They want to kill you. That's just sort of what's happening. What? Right. What? To quote to quote to quote Rory earlier, do you hear yourself when you talk? <laughs> yeah. It's Yeah, I I'm I I I think actually the the the, the cancer thing is a, an is an apt metaphor because I was thinking about that it's just like if I develop a hyper aggressive bone cancer in my left arm, it doesn't really matter that my left arm is a part of me. The doctor's going to be like, well, the chemo's not working, so we're going to cut that off so you don't die. It's, yeah, I don't, I don't think defending yourself, I don't even think violence or fighting is inherently evil. And it, this is something I've been saying a lot lately, and I think this is what kind of frustrates me with a lot of, the, a lot of these visitor accounts, is I don't think they understand what we are at all. I don't think they understand the fact that we're just hyper-sophisticated primates. I don't think they understand the kind of world that we live in and the kind of society that we are subjected to every single day. I'm sorry that for them, violence is deeply unnatural and horrible, but it is an intrinsic part of humanity. We are aggressive. We are 
we are apex predators. Like, well, I mean, not just that we live on a predatory planet. Yes. I mean, mean, we are surrounded by death and conflict constantly because that's how our natural world works. I don't know if whatever realm they come from, there is no such thing as a predator. That's entirely possible. And also, at one point in the book, in this book specifically, one of the visitors made a comment about, well, humans are one of the few races that are actually capable of free will. And I think that Strieber's visitors also said something similar to that. Yeah, because at, at one point points, he thought they were a hive because of how they like looked at our like free will. So, like, uh, like it was alien to them. Yeah, and I, I, part of me legitimately wonders if they just don't want if they just don't fully understand what that is, and also, this is a very strange thing for me to venture, given how how deeply i resonate with a lot of with with a lot of hindu mysticism and things like that maybe humans aren't as deeply connected to each other as most of the other sapient species are and maybe that's why violence is more natural for us and again it's kind of like space pita they might be attempting to apply a solution to something that's not necessarily a problem, or at least is not necessarily the root of the problem. It's kind of, again, circling back to my frustration with how they're trying to get us to stop ecologically harming the planet, you are speaking to the wrong people. You are addressing the wrong facet of the problem. You want humans to stop being violent? Help us figure out how to make a world where violence isn't constantly necessary. Right. Like, I'm not asking you, Antarel, to wave your hands and make the world better. I'm asking you to come down here and volunteer in a fucking soup kitchen. Right. right. Well, and that's that's the thing is that, I mean, if we're looking at this in a very in a very practical, you know, affecting the whole world kind of way, even if they did come down and say, hey, if anyone who promises world peace, anyone who works towards it, uh, we're going to help you specifically. Well, what have you done then? You've created a society of haves and have-nots. Uh-huh. And then and then, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to get war. Or, hey, let's say we even create a situation where 99% of the countries in the world get in on the deal, and it's peaceful and harmonious. But if 1% doesn't, that group either A, is going to commit war on the others, trying to get what they have, or they're going to have violence within their own ranks. And when that happens... Let's say, let's say, for example, uh, it's North Korea, and they are going to continue starving and brutalizing their people. And once the rest of us are living in paradise, can we really say we're ethical people if we're just sitting there and saying, yeah, that's happening, oh, well, because their leader decided they didn't want to get in on the deal? No, we, we ha- in my opinion, we have a moral obligation to, to get involved if we can, to try to prevent uh, these acts of barbarity. Were, were we supposed to just let the Axis powers do that? Right, and that, that's the thing that I come back to. Now, that said, uh, I did have the thought of what if we're thinking about this, I mean, it, obviously, of course we're going to do this, but thinking about this in a too-human sort of way, or rather a too-materialist sort of way, kind of going back to the idea of what if it's more about injecting these concepts into the human unconsciousness until it reaches a critical mass point. What if uh, that cr- after that critical mass point, it's like the world changes in a snap. Suddenly, uh, human violence is no more. We're incapable of it because we all have these sh- a shared revelatory experience of oneness. Um, 
I, that would be insane. I can't even imagine the chaos that would come in the immediate aftermath of that. But uh, so well, I, by I, that logic, there wouldn't be any chaos. Well, that's true. I don't know. So if something, we, our entire worldview, outlook, everything we understand would fundamentally shift. We can't imagine what that would look like. It yeah. is impossible for us. Well, yeah, it would be, and so and I. But I think though that's what it would take. Anything short of that, you're gonna still have violence. It's because it, again, like you were saying, Jay, it's it's ingrained into our world, and it seems to have been that way forever. We've been on this planet for what two hundred thousand years, and we're still we were murdering each other from day one. Yeah. Um. So uh, I agree with with what you guys said, obviously. But uh, one thing that I thought about, and that this reminded me of, like the idea of oneness, it made me think of. Um, in Druidry, it's called Nuevre, uh, or in I in Ireland, it would be called uh, Neert which is like chi. It's, your, it's the energy, the life force. Um, and, and it's kind of how we talk about consciousness on the show. Um, and this energy is present in all of nature, from rocks to trees to us to insects. It, it's all there. It's the subtle life force that connects all of nature. Think like a web. You know? So in, in, in this, there's no hierarchy. We all serve our purpose and have our place in the world. And that oneness made me think of that. And that is something that I believe in. I believe that we are all connected in, in one form or another, that we can interact with each other that way, and that we have to strive to live more like that, right? That being said, if someone comes into my house to commit, said, uh, commit an act of evil, am I supposed to just let them kill me? Because killing them in self-defense is its own separate act of evil? Or is it because killing them is also killing a part of me? You know, and I, I think it's far too complicated to answer simply because there is no easy answer here. Um, and, like, I, I agree that right now as a society we are, or at least we have to, or that we are, or we act separate from one another. And we need to we need to do a better job of treating each other as one society at a global level, not just a, a country by country level. Oh, I, I agree. I'm all for a brotherhood of humanity. Right. I mean, that's that. You know, the uh, you know, we we need ultimately we like like you, you were saying, brotherhood of humanity. We need to care about one another. We need to take care of each other. But until we as a society can agree upon these things, we can agree that. All people deserve equal rights, that queer people have a place on this earth, that people of color are equal to, to, to white people, that women are equal to men, and to all of these things that are not true in modern society I mean, even uh, become true on a, on a global level, then our societal consciousness can't be raised. Right. Uh, and even, even those goals, well, they are wonderful. I mean, we also need a world where everyone can eat. Yeah. Where, where people aren't living in terror that their government is going to decide to genocide them. Because, I mean, we, we do have a very privileged position to be talking about this, considering right now, at least, we're not at danger of that happening. We're not starving to death actively. We're not... Uh, no, absolutely. We, we're at a, a place of privilege, which is why it's important that we bring up that while, yes, we, the three of us in this room, we live, we live a comfortable life. We do. 
Uh, uh, we, we've all worked very hard to get here, but it's because we've had these privileges that we can do these things, which is why it's so important that we, we have to, or why it's so important that we bring, bring this up. We can't just say, yeah, this will be easy because, you know, life's been so easy. Life is easy for us now. It's not for everybody, and it, and it, and it won't be until we bring up all of these things. And, and like, like you said, with, with, you know, there are people all over the, all over the world that, that are starving day in and day out. Uh, and, and there are people down the street from us that are starving day in and day out. And the problem, at least one of the problems that, that I see is the ideals of our world that bring that have brought us down. So, and we talked about this a bit in Occult America, um, this me, me, me mentality, the greed of Christian capitalism. These are all on the rise again, even stronger than, you know, arguably even stronger than they have been before because of this cult mentality that's growing, growing so fast in our society. Um, and the way that they act, if we just stand back and let it happen, they're going to win. Right. And, Again, it comes back to it's like a disease. What do you do? I mean, right? It's it's like Catholicism to the Gnostics. I mean, acts of violence. I guess it comes back to this: acts of violence. To me, that's not the issue. The intent is what. Right. Like, if you're going to, you know, let's say again, let's say you're going into a, uh, a another city or another country to stop a genocide. You're going there to protect people who can't protect themselves. I. And this might just be my moral failing. I can't see that as an act of evil. Right. Even if you're going in there and machine gunning down a, a thousand enemy soldiers, I can't see that as an act of evil because fundamentally you're going there because if you didn't, those soldiers would have massacred children. Right. Like, now, that said, we shouldn't. there are many wars we've been involved in that we absolutely shouldn't have been that weren't done for the right reasons. Right. And this is, you know... And and none of us are saying that we need to go out and commit a bunch of acts of violence against all the people that disagree with us. That uh, We are not saying that. I do not endorse that in any way. Trust me, I want nothing more in life than to be able to be a pacifist. Repeating Trust this, me. Repeating this for the future court date, we are not endorsing this. Yeah. But, but also, we can't do nothing. We can't just let them, like you said, we can't just let them gun us down in the street. We have to continue to fight back in the society that we have because we have billions of people on this rock and we can't just all walk out into the desert and hang out with this knockoff angel. You know, we can't, that, that's not how we live life. That's not, that, that's not how this world works for us. So I, I don't know. Like, ultimately, I don't know what we're supposed to do if what they're saying is that we can't fight back because we can't just leave Earth or even leave the U.S. It's not much better, or in other countries, it's not better at all than where we are. So I think, like, the only thing that we can do, at least in my opinion, in my opinion, is to continue to play the shitty cards that we've been dealt and slowly whittle away at uh, at 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 the rock or the you know, whatever that that is our fucked up society, while continuing to better ourselves, open up our minds and show everyone else that there is another path, and maybe that's our purpose. Maybe that's the message that they want us to lead. That we have to lead by example. Well, it could be something similar to here is an impossible goal. The point is not to achieve that; it is to be trying. Yeah. 
So I guess in a long, very long-winded way, the answer to my question is I think that leaving someone defenseless is, if anything, self-harm. Because if we are one, then I can't let myself get beat up just because some bigot decided he didn't like my hair color. Right. No, and I, I fully agree. I think this this absolutely comes from a position of I have always been a large, relatively physical, capable person who hangs out with a lot of um, people who are part of uh, stigmatized populations. I have a lot of queer friends. I've had lot. I've had several friends who are people of color. I've had friends with strange diseases that got them mocked in school, and. So I definitely have this, I, I guess, complex in my head of for a long time, I what kind of was a bit of a shield for pe- some people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actively tried my best to stand up for them and to try to, uh, again, use uh, bu- bully the bullies, as it were, use my size to my to their advantage. Um, so I, I absolutely that's absolutely coloring my perception of this question. But to me, defending others, especially defending the defenseless or defending the innocent, that is one of the highest callings. Yeah. Because someone has to. Yeah. Because if we just sit back and let, let it happen, who the fuck are we? We're, yeah. we're, we're monsters. No, I agree. Wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. Well, in uh, typical Noctivigant fashion, question five got really heavy really fast. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> but like I said, uh, uh, when we were talking about this before we came down here, I started right. Like I, I actually wrote myself notes this time so that I could be prepared. And when I started writing notes for this question, I got carried away. <laughs> it's all right. So uh, any final thoughts on the portals and UFOs of Mount Shasta? Uh, like most things that we've discovered, I definitely think that something happened or is happening with Mount Shasta. Um, but I am super skeptical if it what hasn't come across of uh, Ricardo Gonzalez. Yeah, no, and I, I, I go back to that too. I, I can't say nothing's happening. Yeah, agreed. There's way too many independent witnesses. There's way too many uh, weird stories that seem to strangely correspond with other stories we've read. It's the human element here that I am the most dubious of. Yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, that's that's about where I'm at. Here's the thing is, statistically, some cult leaders are probably telling at least a partial truth. True. Maybe the, uh, maybe him and Antarell are in on it together. Maybe, maybe Heaven's Gate are actually on that comet. I don't think that, yeah. <laughs> but maybe, maybe Antarell and Ricardo Gonzalez are in it together. And uh, like you said, uh, Antarell is just hanging out with his weed smoking cousin Greg, and he's just like, "We need money for grass." So like, <laughs> it's like, how does me doing this in the desert make you money? Shut the fuck up! They're harvesting human psychic uh, power because that is galactic currency is psychic power. So literally, he's harvesting us for drug money. Jesus Christ. I would absolutely buy that from Antarell specifically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't like him. I don't trust anything that tall. I just got the image in my head, Jay, of like you being the only one awake at like 3 a.m. when there's a knock at the door and you opening the door and there's 12 foot tall Antarell in the stoop and you just look him in the eye and then slowly close the door. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, one second. And I walk down here and I come back out with my bat and I'm like, let's fucking go. <laughs> 
I um, lose that fight immediately for many reasons, but because he's twelve point. feet tall. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's I'm very small. Um, <laughs> and uh, but you know, as we just talked about, I am an angry primate uh, who frequently stays up too late and gets really high. So um, that would still be my first response. Fair. All right. Well, are we ready to move into our about the author? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. Grant Cameron became involved in ufology at the end of the Vietnam War in May of 1975 when he witnessed a UFO that became known as the infamous Charlie Red Star. From there, he embarked on a 30-plus year-long quest to research and understand the UFO mystery, working primarily with Canadian sightings and the Canadian government. He is considered an expert on the Canadian government's Project Magnet UFO program led by the late Wilbert B. Smith. His research has also focused on topics such as the role the United States president plays in the UFO mystery, the connections between world governments and UFOs, and government cover-ups. In February 2012, he experienced a mental download event which turned him away from a purely nuts-and-bolts interpretation of the phenomenon and towards investigations into the role consciousness plays in the mystery. This broadened his research to include his theory regarding ET involvement in modern music, human inspiration, art, and books. He also began researching NDEs, meditation, and savants as they may relate to the UFO mystery. He has lectured widely across the Western world and was among the 40 witnesses who testified during the Citizens' Hearing for Disclosure. He has authored several other books, including Charlie Red Star, True Reports of One of North America's Biggest UFO Sightings, The Clinton UFO Book, E.T. Politics in the White House, The Canadian Government UFO Story, Breakthrough the Psilocybin School, Inspired, the Paranormal World of Creativity, Triangles, Aliens, and Messages, UFOs and Encounters with the Non-Ordinary at Mount Shasta, Contact Modalities, the Keys to the Universe, Tuned In, the Paranormal World of Music, and Managing Magic, the Government's UFO Disclosure Plan. He has appeared as himself in a number of UFO documentaries and television shows, including Ancient Aliens, Alien Abductions and Paranormal Sightings, Real People Reveal Their Stories, Hangar One, The UFO Files, Unveiling the Truth, UFOs and Consciousness, UFO, and a Spanish-speaking program titled Dossieres Misteri. He is the recipient of the Leeds Conference International Researcher of the Year and the UFO Congress Researcher of the Year. Through his It's All Connected publishing company, he has published the works of fellow researchers including Nancy Tremaine and Desta Barnaby. He does manage the itsallconnected.weebly.com website, where he maintains an active blog and releases news about his upcoming speaking engagements. And as a note, do not go to the presidentialufo.com website he previously maintained, as it now leads to a teen sex webcam site which attempted to install malware on my computer. Huh. As a final note, Grant Cameron will be joining us here for the next edition of Midnight Chats. Woo. Which should be fun. I uh, We're going to talk a bit about his uh, upcoming book, which is about people who have piloted the UFOs. And uh, we'll t I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that Mount Shasta at length. Absolutely. So are we ready for housekeeping? I think we are. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. <laughs> what the fuck was that, Nick? That was um I I'm 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 tapped out. I have given it my all. I've given 110% and now I'm at negative 10% because that saying is bullshit. So if you liked what you heard. <laughs> so if you like what you heard, please like and subscribe or whatever 
podcasting platform it is that you are listening on. And if it is Apple or Spotify, please leave us a review because they really do help us, you know, get through that terrible, awful, awful algorithm. I tried to think of another word other than awful and I couldn't do it. So we double awfuled. <laughs> but uh not that's gonna be a review of our show double off <laughs> five-star review double off <laughs> please somebody leave that for us because it'll be hilarious uh, but if you want to reach out you can do that if you have any book re- book requests if you have anything that you want to yell us yell at us about you can do that you can send us an email noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow us on Twitter at Noctivian Pod, and I am at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And we also have a plethora of other social medias. We have an Instagram, Noctivian underscore podcast. Uh, we have a Reddit account, Noctivian Podcast. We have a Tumblr account, Noctivian Podcast. And as you can tell, there is in fact a theme. But. I think that's it. What's coming up next, Nick? So next up, we are going to be diving into uh, Diary of an American Exorcist. Jay is leading us back into the spooky realm. I'm so excited. This is written by an actual exorcist, not someone who says they know how to perform exorcisms. I'm talking about a person where the Pope is like, yes, he could chase the demons out. (laughs) That guy. That guy. Right on. I'm real excited. I pulled it up on my Kindle yep. app today. Monsignor Stephen Rossetti. Ooh, yes. An actual Monsignor. This will s- be fun. I swear up and down I'm not a shill for the church, but I'm just caught up in the pageantry. <laughs> you are going to find some of his personal beliefs difficult. I know I will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's got- oh, so that should be fun. All right, but I think that's it. Nick. Lead us out of here. All right. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Stay safe on those midnight roads. Don't get lost. Get lost. Do it. No, actually, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm sorry. I take it back. I take it back. Jesus Christ, just stay on the path. This is why we have signposts now. You know what happens when you wander off the path? You find Antarel smoking weed behind a dumpster and being, don't look at me. I think if I was going to smoke weed with any of the visitors, it'd have to be injured cold. I think he'd have the dank shit. Fuck yeah.